I, I, I don't. You've explained to me what it is before. <laughs> right. Oh, are we going to be just badgering you with papis? <laughs> or indeed, bodgering? Papis. <laughs> you, you, you might have to. Eventually, I'll like get it drilled into my head what it is because you've explained it on. I, I want to say what we've done about. 14 podcasts you've explained to me on about nine of them (laughs) like whether off the air or on and i still just like it involves biscuits and competition is that close (laughs) that makes sense yeah uh anyway so podcast concept uh (laughs) yeah at some point, I will jokingly say we're recording because the podcast that kind of brought me and Maxi together, that's a thing that happens. And that will be the beginning of the show. Uh, there will be some rambling um, and then we will move on to talking about one thing we've learned from popular culture. I mean, this week was, I think, originally what we said. I mean, this was never going to be a weekly show. It then still. became each month, which was our <laughs> heartfelt intentions was to do a monthly, like, one to two hour long podcast where we talked about things that meant stuff to us. Uh, and then I think by the time we got to the Star Wars episode, we had given up and now it's just whenever we can find someone who's uh, more interesting than us to be on. Yeah, basically it is very much driven by me thinking of a person who I think would be a good guest, messaging them and then them messaging me back. Oh, I, I feel like there was a, a subtle dig there. Of I'm like, sorry, me I'm finding sorry. someone Because Max hasn't found anyone ever. I can't think why. Like, I don't think our show is very intimidating. Oh no, there's nothing intimidating about a show that averages two hours in length. Well, it's Look, the idea of being recorded, isn't it? That's the intimidating thing. Oh, yeah, and, you know, being heard by other people and being, you know, how to say it. Don't worry about being heard. Oh, God. When, I was, when I was in a flat share slam down, like immediately, as soon as I was given the microphone, I'm like, oh, shit, this is going to be heard by so many people. Yeah. Did you at any point wear a white coat? Because like, I, I feel like there's a white privilege joke here and I don't actually know enough. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, up. I did wear a lab coat for my, uh, I was going to say my stand-up debut, but it wasn't my stand-up debut, my like open audience stand-up debut. Um, I mean, it could, could be described as a mistake. <laughs> I don't think I really had the persona reason to do it. And that's, yeah. I understand now why. Uh, there's um, one thing I've learned is that costuming in comedy is, a very risky bit of business, at least stand-up wise. Yeah. I mean, I would be surprised. Anyway, we should probably talk about that on the show. So then the third <laughs> things that happen, the third thing that happens on the show is we then move into talking about our topic. So you know, around the topic area, you know, stuff that's happened to us that's interesting and where vaguely possible connections that that makes with our overall understanding of our lives. But that second bit is looser. Um, and is basically just because that's the way my brain works. <laughs> okay. Um, so yes, well that that certainly that certainly killed the energy. So so that's good. Um, one other thing, I for some reason decided that the intro should be really like unprofessional in order to like deconstruct my old podcast. I don't know why I'm still committed to that because it's a long time since I did my old podcast. Meanwhile, I try and rebel against this by uh, just randomly trying to throw in a professional intro when I think the show should start and seeing what happens. So, we're recording. <laughs> oh, God. Also, you might say that multiple I might say that multiple times and not mean it. There is there is there is a risk of that. Um so yeah, we're in such a like that Maxi is right. Like we know a bunch of other podcasters, both of us, and we're in a kind of podcasting bubble or, you know, small kind of okay. podcasting network almost. Yeah. And I do worry that 
A, those are our own listeners, if that actually, to be honest, and B, that a lot of the referentiality is to stuff within that very small, small demo. That's okay. I mean, I'm going to balance this out. Uh, All my references today are just going to be to things I like about stand-up comedians. I I think I've literally written uh, one line about each of them, and it's just going to be like, yes, I'll do. I've made no preparation at all. I'm just going to wing it. I'm 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 improving this. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, we've all chosen different comedy approaches. (laughs) I I, uh, went to auction. For the sake of diversity in the genres we're doing today. Absolutely, absolutely. So I went to an auction, right? And uh, I, okay. I went to this auction and they were selling off all this like material from some 80s observational comic. Ooh, and, was it? Uh, no, no, no. I mean, basically what I'm doing is I'm pretending that I'm retelling the Mike McIntyre slander uh, by Stuart Lee. Because isn't that something that Stuart Lee, I was going to say made up, I mean, uh, alleged. <laughs> That's a word that is really... Uh, it it is... In his biography, at least, he was quite fond of pointing out that uh, Michael McIntyre doesn't actually have jokes. I mean, you've you've kind of set up a really early question. We're kind of going to get into the topic really early, but what's a joke? Oh, God. Exactly, though, right? Very serious question. That's what I was trying to, like, look into for my dissertation, because I did my dissertation about comedy just, and it's so hard. Is language and autism in comedy, so it's actually quite relevant to the whole Ooh. psychology thing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's good. Thank you. I hope it's good. I'll get my result for it tomorrow. Oh, oh okay. God. <laughs> so, well, at this point, we presume that it was excellent. Like, you know... <laughs> It was one of the, I mean, all my lectures were like, oh, it sounds really good, but I'm, I'm bad at assignments. I've got to propose a project for like my thesis in the next few weeks, and it's very much based I, I on I feel a... like you just pulled back a sentence there as soon as you hit the word propose. <laughs> <laughs> Callbacks <to> earlier. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, that's another thing we do. Callbacks to before the show started. Uh, usually it is suggested by Maxi that I said something horrendously inappropriate, which for once is not true. Yeah, I, I feel yeah. like you're, you're trying quite hard to hold yourself back there, Sam. Life is kind of comical sometimes. And yes. I, I don't agree, Tim. Life is pain. Life is pain. So comedy is the escape from that. <laughs> Well, you'd think, but it uh, depends how good you are. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, um, if we talk about some of my experiences later, <laughs> maybe not. Um, so, I mean, it yeah. doesn't seem to help Jack D. Yeah, 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 perhaps. But, I, I think mean, he likes yeah. being that way, though. I think He's a he... fictional character. Yeah, well, you know, so, so are we. We're just less elaborated. Mm. Okay, I'm uh, over here keeping it real. No, no, no. The whole fiction thing, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, what was I going to say? I was going to say, yeah, it's so long since between we did shows that I'd like trying to invest in some like measure of feedback or anything like that is kind of pointless. The last show we did was politics and... Yeah, I, I listened def- to it. It was really Oh my God. You're the one. Presumably <laughs> as preparation haven't been invited onto the show. <laughs> that is different, but it is our main strategy for getting new listeners. <laughs> oh, see, and that, that's the perfect episode to listen to because uh, I was really tired and cranky. So it was literally just James and Tim. It's, it's the perfect format. You talked about punk. I remember you talking about punk and making it feel old. You did, yeah. I can't remember anything I do. (laughs) 
which uh, becomes a problem with my partner. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> okay. Oh, that, uh, that was what, that was like the most English Rodney Dangerfield twist. <laughs> uh, I'm not just adding names to my notes here. Sure, sure. Just any time <laughs> you think of another comic. Um, so, yes, I seem to remember we had a, quite a running commentary from Clarky, who was basically the other person I thought about inviting on the episode. Of the two people I know who are like most political, not that Clarky. Sorry, we oh. know another guy called Clarky. Oh God, uh, I was so confusing for a second. Yeah, if if, if I knew Clarky as in Clarky from Papiers, <laughs> like. I, I, I'd be fascinated to have a conversation with him on his own. Like, he must be really interesting as a solo person, mm. given that he's the one who hasn't done, like, solo stuff, That's as far as I know. No, he's just done, like, acting, really. So, yeah, him and his own actual persona of directions. No, we, we know someone called Clarky, who's also known as Kiha, who is a very interesting uh, political mind. Like, it was the two giant people that we know, basically, James, <laughs> who is giant, and Clarky, who is giant, we're, we're, who I thought. We're missing like, one giant still. We've yet to have David Wynn on. Oh, yes, true. Another. But, I mean, different... he, he's too good for us now. He's made it to the American comic conventions. He's, uh, he's got away from us. My my uh, brother was so, so impressed when I was like, you, you know that uh, my friend David is the official artist for Explain the X-Men? And my brother was like, whoa, really? Uh, it, because my brother has really got into Explain the X-Men. See, I'm not good at like following any podcast reach, even the ones I like. Like, is Explain the X-Men a big thing? Because I've been listening to it since day one and I don't even go on the website. Okay, I think it's a bigger thing than like most of the shows that we're involved in. Oh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, uh, we've hit the the high mark on the other 10% uh, Patreon of $30. Like, we're, we're rolling in it compared to like the couple of thousand that Explain the X-Men gets. So there you go. There's the level of comparison. A show which we occasionally guest on has $30 a month and yeah. Explain the X-Men has thousands and can do like video shows and stuff. So, Joseph, this may be a little inside baseball now. We're just talking about <laughs> things, things we care about. That's fine. Context is relevant in comedy sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Real, real low energy start. That's really good. Should we, should we move to talking about something we've learned this week? When did the episode start, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. Uh, do you want to use one as a fake preamble? And actually, like, let's... Uh, Roll the crest, whatever that means. Uh, okay, well, let's go and say uh, hello and welcome to Tim and Max. Oh, God, in my notes, I've actually written it down as the acronym. Tim and Max, no, let like, PC. Like, like, you should do it like Richard Herring, like Rehulstapur sort of thing. Yeah, I, I, Sorry, it's an instinct. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not saying that I completely ripped Richard Herring off for the comedy <laughs> episode. But yes, this is Tim and Max, let Kafpika. Um, oh, I can't remember the acronym now, but PC, like ps instead of cuss. Let calf piss. <laughs> uh, otherwise, they get an infection, don't grow up to be full size cows. But yes, welcome to. Are you our... claiming to be the herring of this show? <laughs> I I have no idea anymore. I've lost my identity. Look, I'm trying to do a professional introduction just to. Yeah, and I'm trying to sabotage Sorry. it. That's how it works. <laughs> oh, welcome to a semi-regular, maybe monthly, maybe bi-monthly show where we talk about things that taught us lessons about what we know about things. Oh God, yeah, no. What is this show even about, Tim? <laughs> so, 
this show is a show where we recognise that actually pop culture being all around us as a kind of vortex really influences the way we think and act. It's super interesting in a kind of, you know, small p psychological way. Uh, but you know what's also really interesting? Us. Us. We're fascinating. So you put those two things together and you've got a gold mine of interesting stories to talk about. But on top of that, because clearly that's a slight lie, we also get an interesting guest uh, to inspire us and who we consider in their own sense an expert on the topic at hand. So uh, welcome to the show, Josie. Hello. Hello. A comedy Josie, because that's comedy a thing Josie. that people like. Oh. <laughs> oh, can we all have comedy in front of our name? <laughs> yeah. Com- comedy Tim. No, I, no, actually, no, you're, you're comedy swan because it creates an entertaining cartoon creature in everyone's minds. But there's some good Tims, like Tim Key, yeah. Tim, Tim Vine. Vine. Th- those two. <laughs> but I'm sure really there's another. the comedy rule of three there. So, some people like Tim Minchin. Oh, yeah, Tim oh, Minchin, yeah. that is the third one. Yeah. yeah. I've got Josie Long. And Josie Lawrence. Oh, God, yeah. Who is, like, from the the West Midlands. Is she? She, like, grew up on the street opposite the street where I grew up. Oh. Pretty much. Yeah. West Midlands I've got no one. <laughs> yeah, Max, it's too much of a power name for comedians, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is. It is. It's just, it's, it's too... Fr- What's that power name? We literally in the preamble said Dangerfield. Like, I'm pretty sure it's not his actual surname, but that's a power name. True, true. Okay, so do you think there's a transatlantic divide with that? Because I can't picture... I suppose there's Max and Ivan, isn't there? Oh, yeah. So... Max Seleska, yeah. Okay, cool. I could not think of his surname. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's one of those really confusing ones. And, yeah, I can't think of any other Maxes off the top of my head. In no. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm the funniest Max by default. <laughs> Good plan. Uh, Good so plan. I, I get my trophy. You two can have your runners-up prizes. Uh, <laughs> and we will move on. <laughs> but yeah, so our subject today is clearly comedy. And mm. we will get into that sort of area stuff. But first, we're going to talk about the recent lessons we've learned in life. Yes. Uh, some are related to comedy. Some may be uh, winged on the spot. And the other one will be Tim's, which will have nothing to do with anything. And will basically be me monologuing for five minutes if you guys are lucky about something I've been thinking very deeply about. Probably something serious and psychological. So, I was watching The A Word. Uh, Oh, okay. Is that the... Yeah. I'm conscious that I am approaching something potentially problematic. What is The A Word? So. Yeah, it's meant to be about an autistic boy and, like, how the family react to that. Hmm. Having watched it, I was relatively pleased with how, basically, it didn't not emphasise the family, but what Mm -hmm. it did was it problematised that, as I understand it. It made very clear that the fact that the thing was all about the impact on the family was Mm -hmm. really bad, and it really kind of, not attacked, but criticised the characters for making it all about themselves. Okay, so I haven't watched it, so I've only just heard other people's opinions about it, but it's just like, I've heard some mixed things from the autistic community about it. Yes, I suppose, what I haven't done is done my research on what the autistic community think. As a person who is 
close to the edge without crossing over it to the extent that some autistic people are confused by the fact that I don't have a diagnosis and they do at times. That is a real see, thing that's see, happened. See, as an autistic person, I was confused as well. Yeah, yeah, you've listened to this show and <laughs> just been like, really? This guy? Well, actually, I guess it's... Yeah, yeah, uh, I just come across that way. I don't really have any of the like childhood stuff, basically. Uh, I checked. <laughs> no, um, I, I'm the worst sort here because I'm fairly neurotypical, but I can kind of do that whole sort of, oh, but I've got friends who are like this by saying, oh, yeah, my, my partner has Asperger's and her brother has autism. So like, I, I have a window to it, but not the requisite understanding to ever make a judgment call. Yeah. So I, I shall... There we go. We, we have identified our positions. But yeah, so I did watch the show because uh, Chris Treckleston is my favourite actor. A, good. a situation that caused me to uh, completely lock my EA account at one point. Um, if you'll excuse the tangent. Um, my uh, brother was trying to get into the Old Republic back when that was a game that was worth playing. Oh, wait. When was that? Anyway, back when that was a game we thought was worth playing. and uh, I feel like that was a real deep cut criticism of a game that I know nothing about. Yeah, same. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it just... Anyway, no, we don't have time for me to talk about that because then we just start endless, yeah. endless Star Wars stuff. And... Okay, we're, try we're trying to make this like a... We're trying to tighten up our show quality here. You're like, trying like... to tighten up our show quality, yes. Well, basically, um... I'm going to whip you from a distance. How? <laughs> Who knows? Uh... That's a dynamic that I'm sure some of our listeners want. Um, so... <laughs> Are um, we shipped? No, no. Regardless, tell us about your thing. Like, Somebody's bound to be shipped at some point. It just happens. <laughs> like, because we're a duo, because we're a male duo, perhaps. Like, it happened. With, like, me me and Ben and um, Matt and Ryan from uh, Overthinking It's TFT got shipped. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, cross-shipped cross and quite appropriately. Like, I think me... Anyway, again, distractions. No, so... Um, and my security question was who my favourite actor was. And my brother called me up and he's like, who's your favourite actor? But didn't explain the context. So I had no idea that it was about this security question. And so I was like, oh, it's, uh, you know, well, maybe it's Killian Murphy or maybe it's Tom Hardy. But <laughs> I was like, no, 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 not actors who you fancy, just actors that you think are good. Um, and I went through a whole list. And then he was like, no, you've just got me locked out. I'm going to have to call. I had to call Canada. I had to call Bioware in Canada to get it unlocked. <laughs> Because I was like, oh, the security question. Oh, that's Christopher Eccleston. He's like, it's locked now. But Christopher Eccleston is my favourite actor. Um, mm. So that's why I watched the A word. But yeah, basically, uh, they talk about kind of systemic family problems. And they have, like literally, you know, they have a clinical psychologist in the show. They have a psychiatrist in the show. And they have a speech therapist who does some systemic family work with mm. them. And they really highlight how a lot of the issues really are about the family dynamic yes. and about the way the family is responding and focusing on them and especially yes. the way the, the family communicates is really problematic. Mm. But the show still does feel a bit disconnected from the experience of this boy, Joe, mm. who has received a diagnosis um, at about the age of eight. Yeah, see, I was like three when I got my diagnosis, so I didn't know what the hell was happening around me at the time. It was probably just like a lot of like mayhem because <laughs> I had to, because um, I, I, I was diagnosed like a month or so before the whole MMR jab scare okay, became right. big. So, oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> that was fun. And. I guess this is kind of a personal question. Did that then have an impact on the way your kind of parents contextualised and understood what was going on? 
Well, it's a bit difficult because, like, I think that did have an impact, but also it was 1998 and there wasn't much known about autism in the mainstream, sure, let alone yeah. in, the, in psychology in the first place. Yeah, yeah, it's relatively, it's like, I think, one of the seminal kind of papers that I think of when I think about understanding, it's like 1985, mm. which... <laughs> I'm, I'm never letting you use that word. It's, it's my word. <laughs> Look, I think we can be a bit fluid about how we use that word. <laughs> um, okay, I've got to stop interrupting. <laughs> no, no, no. So a very like yeah, Lorna Lorna Wing's paper that kind of brought in a lot of the ways we understand things in terms of you know triad of differences. Should we say differences? Yeah, I, yeah. It was the triad like. of um, difficulty. I think I was I read it up as when I was doing my dissertation. Yeah, I often hear it as impairments, but... That's it, the triad of impairments, yeah. I, That's yeah. how I've heard it from uh, when I was on my course recently as well. So, yeah, but I think that does suggest a certain normative, neurotypical way of seeing things. Yeah. So it's a not very neurodiverse way of phrasing it, whereas if you talk, you, you can still kind of keep on the triad idea, mm. I think. But anyway, um, but yeah, so I thought the A word was more positive and helpful than it could have been yeah. and it kind of touched upon without really going into the way in which there might be kind of trade stuff within the family um mm. and so i think to my mind but maybe it's me who is really interested in the, the area and uh, is you know working in the field of clinical psychology highlighted the lack of black and white difference uh between one thing and the other thing mm. you know because different characters showed more or less similarity to that sort of archetype than others yeah but it wasn't that then those characters were portrayed negatively pretty much all the characters were portrayed negatively just some of them were more close to you know being further up the spectrum than others okay so yeah i wanted to i wanted to uh mention it as something interesting and not without its not without its problems to use a kermodism but mm. not do, do we do we have a lesson to spin out of it so i guess the lesson is i think talking about like systemic family problems in a drama is really interesting and i'm about to, tomorrow i start on some family therapy training as part of my course so mm. maybe this is on my mind anyway but yeah. most dramas contain family dynamics that are problematic but very few dramas apart from this one actually explicitly like in the text name that there are dynamics going wrong and that that's what's powering the drama. And we often mm. joke about, oh, you know, how many things are caused by difficulties in communication that wouldn't happen in the real world? You know, um, I guess I was going to say Romeo and Juliet. That's not a great example, but so many. Three's Company is a good mm. example of a miscommunicated situation. Wouldn't happen in reality. I don't really know anything about Three's Company. Uh, it's kind of got like the sort of Archie thing. I mean, there's there's three people. One of them is a guy, and usually due to some sort of miscommunication, he has to date both of them in the same restaurant. Okay. Uh, oh, okay. It's, it's actually quite a good old American sitcom uh, by the standards of that. Oh, sure, sure. But that's neither here nor there. But yeah, so yeah, exactly. The kind of farcical situations that emerge in those sort of comedies, but like the rom-com things where you think... No, relationships are not problem-free, but the problems that they are not free of are not these problems, essentially. 
Mm. And I think so. I think there was something to me very interesting about naming it um, because that changes an audience who presumably not used to seeing family work happening, mm. uh, changes that perspective on the whole issue and therefore locates. I was going to say locates the problem, but that implies that there is a single thing and that it is a problem, but that locates difficulty much more broadly, which for an issues based show, mm. I think is was really nuanced and subtle, even if, as, as I say, I'm sure there are loads of things that it got wrong. Mm. And I think like when you talk about autism specifically as well, it, a lot of the issues, I guess depending on how you are individually, is the, the problem seem to stem more from outside things rather than being autistic in of mm. itself. Mm. Yeah. So that's a nice way to sort of talk about that, really. Yeah, and certainly the show also addresses and again does it in a nuanced sort of way mm. ableism yeah uh because there is uh, also a character with um down syndrome mm. which uh leads to a a whole issue around ableism towards him but then mm. b an escape from the conflation of that ableism and essentially his mother very much saying what you think because um our children are treated differently by society that that makes them the same and synonymous and that we're all just going to sympathize with each other mm. so again it doesn't just go oh and also everything that is different is the same yeah um, but that highlights yes that the barriers invariably are in yeah a society that disables rather than any other way around the social model yeah mm. absolutely so yeah great high high energy comedic topic um <laughs> It's a good thing we start with yours. I think we've got to try and rebuild ourselves a little. That was a I mean, very serious thing. A great, I mean, exactly to form, exactly as you predicted would happen. I think I yeah. did dementia on the last show. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's very lucky because, you know, I've done my dissertation on autism and comedy, so they're very well linked. Okay, so Joseph, can you bridge us? Because I think Max has got something about comedy. What What have you learnt recently from, from the world of pop culture? Um... It was Eurovision the other day, wasn't it? And I'm a huge fan of Eurovision. I absolutely adore it with all my heart. And I basically found that doesn't matter how the artist intends it, there is always going to be politics in Eurovision. Mm. No matter how apolitical Eurovision tries to be, there is always going to be politics because that reflects how, like, the voting as well, just not from... Because the voting or the scoring system was different this year it was a whole two-way split between a jury vote and a televote. And you could see, like, how the jury, like, like I think over half of the jury votes didn't vote for Russia at all. And Russia was the top score for the televote. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Because I tried to look at it and it seemed like a lot of the jury vote went towards Australia. Yeah, It exactly. felt like the televote got Ukraine over the edge as well as if yeah. half of Europe voted for Ukraine and half voted for Russia mm. and it was um, very interesting like when I was with my friends talking about because the main like ha- hour of the um, voting is just the um, jury vote mm. being found out a lot of my friends were saying well it's easy to sort of, if we're bringing politics into the scoring it's easy to vote for Australia because they're nothing to do with Europe yeah true so it was, I mean, it's a safe bet, basically. And the song's good as well. It's a very mainstream, poppy song. And I could see why it did as well as it did. It came second in the end. Yes, yeah. 
it's and um but also i can see like you, the ukraine was second in both the the um, televoting and the jury voting which shows that there is an artistic quality that people are looking at and like the song is absolutely beautiful i love it but there's also a, an emotional resonance that the the population saw and wanted to i don't know it was difficult because like a lot of the problem with eurovision is that uh, most people watching it only see it for that final that one yes. night and never listen to the songs beforehand like me where i listen to it as soon as they are revealed for months until the final happens and so they don't they just get that opinion straight away from listening to the song and so if you're talking about like what's, what's happening to the Ukraine at the moment with the annexation of the Crimea in particular, and the song is about what has happened to the Crimean Tatars in, under Stalin's rule, you can see why a lot of people immediately thought it was um, political. I yeah. mean, I did that when I first heard it, but when I watched interviews by the singer Jamala, she was saying it's more of a personal story. It's about what her great-grandmother went through as a Crimean Tatar being deported from the Ukraine under Stalin's rule in 1944. And so I can, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, you like, I think most people did vote for it because they immediately saw it as an anti-Russian song. And because of Russia's LGBT laws, and I think people are sort of slightly scared of a new Soviet Union I suppose with Russia at the moment considering how they're sort of you know their um, censorship laws as well mm. a lot of um, people just want to be anti-Russia which is so like although Russia did become, were number one in the televote Yes, it made me wonder which countries kind of went either way. I was thinking the Baltic states probably really went for Ukraine. Other yeah. states who are less, you know, historically antagonistic towards mm. Russia, presumably yeah. going for. I mean, again, Russia had a catchy song and, you know. They had like, a beautiful staging. It was exactly, really done. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, my parents commented on that. We, that's, you know, my parents watched some of the live broadcast. I didn't because I don't have a TV license. I just watched all of the Overthinking It videos that night. Oh, okay, yeah. So, you know, that's, um, you know, that's, that's slightly like me committing and not committing at the same time, mm. which is strange. But yeah, the staging, whereas, yeah, how did, how did Ukraine stage? So I only, I've only seen like the music video version. I haven't seen any of the live performance of the Ukraine. S the staging was basically, um, it was mostly sort of black in the beginning. So there wasn't really much light just on the singer Jamala. And then the lights pop up and they're kind of like laser lights that look like prison bars. Okay. And then there's a moment where in the song she's sort of singing like a lullaby tune in the song. And then she's sort of screaming into the air. And as that happens, um, something is sort of like colours are blowing up underneath her and growing into a tree in the background in the Ukrainian flag colours. So that's to represent, yeah. supposedly to represent the regrowth of the Ukrainian nation. So pretty powerful stuff. It is really with, powerful. Yeah. And she was so emotional as well. Like, I think um, Jamala says that she, I think she stated in an interview that she sort of dies a bit every time she sings the song because it's so personal and it's so yeah. emotional for her. But while it does have that personal resonance for her, I think it's hard to deny 
the political angle to it. I guess I'm thinking mm. about um, the analogy, because certainly on overthinking it, they really compared it to the Armenian song last year. Oh, yeah. the um, I can't remember what it was actually called, but it was originally called Don't Deny. Oh, yeah. They had to change the name, I think. Mm. Wasn't that considered yeah. too political? It was considered too political. I mean, the the EBU did actually have a look at, at the Ukraine song mm. because people were saying, oh, is this too political? But obviously it's fine if they Apparently, let it through. Yeah, there's some kind of loophole if you focus especially on the historical stuff is the idea mm. that, yeah. that the Armenian song was allowed so long as they changed the title because mm-hmm. to say don't deny is making a political statement in the present about those countries that continue to deny. We're saying this happened is historical. Yeah. But that's very subtle because historical mm. and political are that's a totally artificial separation. Yeah. And I was thinking, you know, people who do make music about the Armenian genocide, so especially thinking about, like, Serge Tankian from System of a Down, who yeah. I very guiltily, I went to a film screening uh, that he put on in Oxford um, of a film about the Armenian genocide, and we watched it, and then there was a bunch of us kind of gathered around this luminary in the courtyard afterwards, and every single person was saying, oh, the film and the work you do, and I was like, Serge, I loved your poetry. Are you going to release a second anthology? <laughs> and I felt guilty, because... <laughs> Maybe that's what the event wasn't about, but I wasn't ever going to meet him again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, you've got to think of yourself in these things. Exactly, exactly. You know, the genesis of modern genocide. You know, we'd watch the movie. No, any, but you know that the that you can imagine that even if he's making a comment about that sort of stuff, there's stuff happening in Armenia and Azerbaijan. You know, the Nagorno-Karabakh yeah. region is back in yeah. kind of conflict. You can't really comment on the history of that area without it having something to say yeah, and I think exactly. that's the same with Ukraine specifically you know that it focused on yeah the experience of the Crimean people within Ukraine and not any of the other kind of ethnic groups within Crimea and use the language which is yeah. obviously you know a whole thing that Stalin did wasn't it was trying to disconnect people from the language the, part of the problem yeah. in Ukraine is that Russian Ukrainian language split and yeah. Okay. Uh, Max, sh- sh- shall I, before we move on to mine, sh- shall I lighten this section up a little bit by, uh, you know, I, I have questions because I've, due to various circumstances, been unable to watch Eurovision for the last five years. Oh, so c- can, okay. I, can I get some dumb questions out of the way? Yes, absolutely. Uh, number one, was this the first year without Wogan? No. Um, Terry Wogan... Um, stopped doing the commentary i think in 2008 well yeah that was actually the last one i watched that's bad (laughs) yeah so 2009 i think graham norton started becoming the commentator it was the first one without wogan on the earth sitting there at home watching it thinking his own commentary i suppose yeah that's pretty significant uh what uh what was england this time how did we do? What were we? Oh, God. England. Uh, the UK did 24th out of 26, which is no surprise. I feel but... like that's better than normal. <laughs> that's the same as normal. But, but we have come like... last, what, three times in the last five or ten years? Yeah, something like that. I, the best we've done recently was actually in 2009, which we, we came fifth oh. place with that. Wow. Who did we have that year? Uh, we had um, Jade Ewan. That was when um, Andrew Lloyd Webber w- wrote the song. Oh, I have seen that one, yes. Mm, it's good. Oh, yeah. Um, what other dumb questions do I have? No, I, I think that's basically the key parts of it. Uh, did, did Jed Wood manage like, their third year of 
doing it spread out over a decade or something, the Jed would still exist. <laughs> no, they don't exist in the Eurovision world still. That's that's important. I feel like it's safe for me to return. Not that they're <laughs> bad. They're kids exploring themselves with crazy hair and Judge Dredd outfits. But uh, they, they weren't the most pleasing entry for Ireland for the last... But they did it twice. It wasn't that many times, was it? Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it, though, Ireland had um, Nicky Byrne from Westlife this year, and he didn't get into the oh. final. Wow. Yes. That's, that's incredible. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, okay. apparently in some Westlife videos, he wasn't really the one doing, you know, like the singing. Yeah, I was, I was wondering that, because I, I, I wasn't into Westlife, so I didn't know, like, if they were, if Nicky Byrne was, like, the main singer or not. I, I feel like it should uh, be Brian somewhere... McFadden when he was solo. He was Westlife, right? Oh. Was I he? feel like I should have the repressed <laughs> knowledge because, uh, as listeners to this show may know, I watch Top of the Pops religiously despite hating the pop music of the era. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. And maybe now it was because I was gathering clues. Um, <laughs> gathering clues my, for future Eurovisions. <laughs> my pop knowledge uh, is acceptable, basically, just because my first ever album was uh, Spice by the Spice Girls on cassette. So uh, I, I get by with knowing who's in uh, in pop groups. And I also get by because my first album was Spice by the Spice Girls. <laughs> but, uh, you know. My first you album was... Um, uh, what was the first... Well, the first Busted album... Busted were my jam when I was like eight. Oh, the the one with uh, the year three thousand on it. Yeah. Um, go to school for. Yeah. You, you yeah. know what? I have no idea how old I was when that came out, but I think I liked that too. <laughs> I'd be fascinated to like meet them and talk about the one line in that song that everyone thinks is really kind of weird. You know, about talking to the person about their great 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 granddaughter. Oh yeah. Like, like the rest of it kind of makes sense as a song, and they need the romance like the kind of slightly, I was going to say salinized, which is a mix of Mm. sanitized, because it was sanitized, but also salinated, because they were underwater. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, it's just like saline, like... (laughs) Exactly. Um, But it's actually the opposite, because it wasn't salty at all. But um, they need that angle. But I don't know if you come back and you tell your friend that you met their descendant and kind of got (laughs) on and slash got off with them. Because that but the timescale was very peculiar because like she would have been a couple of hundred years old at the least, I think. Yeah, they went to the year three thousand. That's loads of generations. I mean some pedant out there has surely worked this out for me, but Mm. still. Uh, I really want to sit down and chat with Buster just to go and stare Charlie right in the eyes and ask him if they're back together because the Fight Star album that came out this year sold less than a thousand copies. Is that true? I honestly have no idea, but it did not sell much at all. And they announced they were back together within, I want to say it was after a month of that album being out. Wow. Which is a a sad story because I I thought Fight Style were perfectly fine when emo was relevant, which is always in my heart. <laughs> uh, yeah, but only in your heart. That's kind of the problem. There isn't yeah, a huge like HMV inside your heart. <laughs> yeah, I think no, no matter how much I I love emo music, it's not going to change the fact that Funeral for a Friend has split up and that no one bought Finch's album two years ago. I just have to live with these things. The fact that it's still kind of all going, except for no one's buying it, is much more depressing than the idea that the movement just kind of faded out until the inevitable reunion tours. Uh, anyway, should, should I go through my lesson as our segment? Yes, you <laughs> yes. Uh, so 
you know, who who here has strong feelings about Ghostbusters, both the old film and the new one with the trailer? See, I I only watched Ghostbusters for the first time a few months ago, so it's not really like nostalgic to me. I have strong feelings about the Lady Bird miniature novelization of Ghostbusters too. Of course, I've, awesome. I've got a hard audience for this one. <laughs> I do have to, I do have strong feelings about the overt sexism in reaction to the um, new Ghostbusters. I can pretend that I'm like a terrible dude, bro. If you want, <laughs> I don't know how I'll tap into that because, like. You know, I don't really have much of that inside me. Um, I've never watched a Melissa McCarthy movie and therefore assume that she's not funny without contact. You guys Um, have never seen a movie with Melissa McCarthy in? Well, I'm not saying that I haven't seen one with her in. I haven't seen one, like, starring her. And if I have seen ones with her in, then, like, she hasn't kind of stuck in my memory. That's actually true. That's not me pretending to be horrible. Tim, are you trying to tell me that you've not seen The Heat? Um... No, is that the one with Sandra Bullock? Yes, that's like the perfect cast for a buddy cop comedy other than Mel Gibson before everyone knew he was racist and Danny Garver before. I think he might be right wing now. Oh, what? How could both of them be bad? I thought it was like a yin and yang thing that, you know, the worse Mel Gibson got, like the better Danny Glover got. I I honestly have no idea. Like Danny Glover keeps to himself nowadays. Uh, Joe Joe Pesci, I think, has just always been the same level of whatever the hell he is. So Danny Glover's involvement in fame is somehow connected to like his age, perhaps. Mm. This is just reminding me that I totally could have made... Come on, come (laughs) on! I, I, I totally could have made this section just about the, the trailer for the Leaf Weapon TV series, but let, let's stick with the Ghostbusters one, because at current moment, it is the most disliked movie trailer on YouTube of all time? Is that from a systematic campaign? I'm pretty sure that is, isn't it? It is absolutely from multiple systematic campaigns. But what, what we're getting now is a... People with names uh, now coming out against it. And by names, I mean if you're a person who was on the internet about 20 years ago. No, that's too far. About 15 years ago. Then you may be familiar with the angry video game nerd, James Rolfe. Oh, yeah. Who, I mean, as predictably for a, a man who lives off of nostalgia and just saying the worst things. And don't get me wrong, I found him really funny back when he made videos I watched. Like... It's Jamie Ralph. He's a guy who defined video game stuff as comedy on YouTube. But he's come out now being like, oh, I'm not going to review Ghostbusters, uh, the new one, but I am going to talk about how it irks me because it means I have to call the old Ghostbusters Ghostbusters 1984 and everyone else has to because of the movie police. And it has to be awful because Harold Ramis is dead and that means it's bad, which I don't even know where to begin with that. Not just that, but his talking about how he's not going to review it, I think it strikes me as the perfect microcosm of the, uh, the self-congratulatory. Tim, are we allowed to swear on this? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, we try and keep it down, but I feel like it's justified in this situation. Okay. The, the self-congratulatory bullshit of people publicly saying they're not going to consume something they don't like. We've had this recently with Batman versus Superman, where people are going, oh, Zack Snyder's awful, I'm going to tell everyone that I'm not going to watch it. And you know those people watched it. Uh, or or Civil War, or pick Geek Property A here, Star Wars. Oh, no one said that about Civil what? War, right? Really? People said about Star Wars, though, didn't they? Because uh, because it's uh, it's all the cucks, right? It's all the white genocide. That was horrendous. Oh, I Did never wanted know? to hear you say the word cucks. We we can't talk about cuckolding on here. That, Ge- that's Ge- a... General Cucks, you know, that character. Oh, I might have got <sighs> something wrong. <laughs> General Cucks. I've been taking notes on what the episode can be called, and General 
Cux is now on the list. Think of the SEO, Maxi. We can't have that. We'll get all the wrong people listening to this show. Well, we'll get these people. And it's the, the, the sort of talk about when you take an older property and make something new with it always centers around these same things. It's like, why do they have new people? Why does it have to be women? Which it usually isn't that many. Ghostbusters is notably so women, but like quite, quite unsurprising because it's Paul Fake who basically only casts women in his films nowadays. And by which I mean he only cast Melissa McCarthy, but uh, we roll with that. He was the principal on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Always weirds yeah. me out. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I think the lesson I've learned here is that nostalgia is the ultimate way of becoming the worst person. I am aware of the irony. Yeah. <laughs> a show that centers entirely on our own self-congratulatory uh, nostalgia and about how things were so much better when we... Well, I don't think we say they're better. Well, I think we say that they defined us uh, for better or worse. And, and you just see people who make their money off a of nostalgia essentially going, this can't be good because it doesn't match my nostalgia. This Superman movie can't be good because it's not the Superman I grew up with. This Ghostbusters movie can't be good because one of them's dead. The others have got cameos on their original roles and it's not the one I grew up with. It's just... And they're girls, right? Like, I don't think you girls. can yeah. separate We can't deny the sexism here. They, they, the they tried to ignore it, but, like, 100%, if it were just, like, white bread lookalikes and, I guess, someone to be Winston, but he'll have even less of a role in the original Winston, uh, like, that, that, no one would have complained, not once. They would have gone, oh, it's just the, in the spirit of the original. Whereas they've got characters fulfilling the same goddamn roles from the original film. Like, uh, for better or worse, again. But, like, they just ignore it all because it's, oh, no, it's the women being scientists. That's ridiculous. To which, I mean, you, you only have to look at the various Twitter hashtags that have been about proving not only do women in science exist, but they're goddamn amazing. Like, oh, it's very frustrating. My lesson here is basically that nerds suck. Uh, it was originally something about nostalgia, but no, it's that no, nerds well, suck. Nostalgia, like, nostalgia is incredibly powerful. And I was thinking about my reaction. I guess this is a way of self-aggrandizing, but, you know, podcast. What do you expect? Um, like, so my reaction to Star Wars was because of my powerful nostalgia, I was thrilled by it being both spiritually the same, but also moving forward. So, like, I feel like my nostalgia made Star Wars Episode Seven even better for me because it then tied in with my, you know, developing values over time. So it's almost like, yeah, nostalgia can really empower something like that. Or if, yeah, you kind of have that nostalgia of conservatism, of everything is everything is necessarily terrible now. Because what really happened is the world happened and you grew more cynical and you grew from that more accepting person to a person who more overtly expresses some of the prejudices that were out there in the material that you liked. Yeah. It's like the films changed, but you didn't. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and cynicism is a real, real thing in comedy. I mean, oh, you, yeah. only, like, you um, only have to... Sorry, you go. Sorry, I was just complaining um, a lot on Tumblr recently about... Because... Um, um, just to basically waste time um, you know, like um, procrastination for my dissertation I watched every single Eurovision Song Contest you could watch all the finals on YouTube and when you got like um, some that had the British commentary on it I just hated the cynicism of it it just ruined it 
and that that's used for comedic value. So that's why I'm just like linking to that. And it was just um, kind of ruined. It's it's just that like um, like in British comedy, especially cynicism is just the way we sort of deal with things. But sometimes it just gets kind of grating because it ruins it, it. It destroys this idea that somebody can actually find something fun in her, just like yeah. actually have fun with something. I mean, it's the sort of thing that killed shows like Peep Show for me in the end. It's that yeah. it was so unrelentingly miserable going look how awkward life is look how terrible these human beings are aren't they terrible enjoy it and i'm just like no and it always brings to mind uh conan o'brien of all people who very famously like spoke out against cynicism as just a quality like how it doesn't help anyone in life when he was being booted off of his talk show for the former one to come back uh jay leno i believe Mm. and like that always sticks with me it's like cynicism doesn't lead anywhere Mm. And it's usually not that funny in the long run. Like, no. what what you just kind of end up with is this need for a breath of fresh air, or even oh, just God. to go back to a cheery comedian. It, it's it's oh, exactly like um, when I was in Edinburgh last year uh, for the whole festival. Um, there were all these comedians, and like I think it was because last year the Conservatives had um, got back into um, power. Mm. And uh, so a lot of people, especially like satirical comedians, were like, "Oh God, this world uh, was so scared of what's going to happen." And then I met, uh, I went to my friend suggested I go see Chris Coltrane, who's a satirical comedian that I really mm. like. Mm. And um, I wasn't really, I hadn't really seen any of his stuff before. And he was still being cynical in a sense, but there was also an, a good message in the end that, and that really like just opened. It just made me feel so free and so happy just to have that positiveness amongst all the cynicism in a sense that's interesting because that's always been my kind of problem with chris coltrane was that he's like if you added josie long to someone who literally would kill a tory in their bed (laughs) like his anger always felt more destructive than like defensive if that makes sense yeah i I always get the feeling he'd rather like um you know, literally kill a Tory than, like, vote them out. Yeah, I can see that. Being angry and destructive isn't necessarily cynical in itself, though. I mean, sure. it, it, I think it all depends on how knowing you are about it. Not not that irony is a, a, an amazing comedy tool, but just even having that little wink of going, like, yeah, I'm being miserable, but it's not actually that bad. I mean, I... Dylan Moran can kind of push himself into that area with the right sort of routine and mm. sometimes go the other direction and be too dour. Yeah. But, like, it it can be done. Mm. Thinking about Edinburgh last year, um, mm. the Edinburgh previews that I saw uh, down in Devon, like the opposite end of the country from Edinburgh, uh, were Tom Sorry. Paris and Matthew Crosby's oh, two, two-thirds of Pappy's, because, you know, oh, there's bound to be... Tom Paris show was so good. But exactly, that's exactly the show that I thought, you know, was deserved uh, Best Newcomer nominee, apart yeah. from the whole having been going to Edinburgh for 10 years or whatever part. Mm-hmm. But it was a fantastic show, and it exactly had that complete lack of cynicism. He is an excitable yes. person who just enjoys the ideas that yeah. he has. And so it felt like something very different because it was, and it made me think, like the emotions of comedy, like mm. joy is an emotion of comedy sometimes, mm. but not always. But I think some of the most effective comedy is comedy that taps into beyond 
kind of laughter that taps into joy. And I think yeah. Tom Parry does does do that. He does that so well. I went to see um, his work in progress in, um, I'm trying to pronounce it correctly, Machankleth. <laughs> the secret Welsh comedy festival that we don't yeah. talk about. Yes. <laughs> and um, it was just so good. Like, he, he literally didn't really have anything planned. He was, it was sort of bait. He had the, like, you know, list of um, jokes that he had in um, yellow T-shirt. Mm. And, but then he just sort of went around like his ideas and it was still so much fun. Like he, towards the end, he picked um, one of my friends who was sat in the front row, he picked her up on, on his shoulders because he talked about how much he loves carrying people on his shoulders at festivals. And one of the phrases he used to describe her, cause she's really short, which I absolutely loved, um, was, um, oh, you're like the size of a niece. <laughs> Oh, that's so that's so joyful. I love that. Yeah, it's kind of beautiful when it happens because I think there's a kind of false dichotomy between the alternative and the mainstream of comedy. Yeah. That mainstream comedy is happy, mm. and alternative comedy therefore isn't allowed to be. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember if we've talked at all about like uh, Michael McIntyre on this like I mentioned him towards the beginning or in the preamble, but it's almost as if popular comedians, and of course talking about mainstream and popular and all that is kind of complicated, but somehow have a monopoly on things that are kind of straightforwardly funny, Mm. and therefore it's assumed that you can't be unstraightforwardly, and therefore alternatively humorous, Mm. without like having to take it in a different emotional direction. Yeah, um, I in the past I've actually like I create one night when I was really bored I sort of created this Venn diagram I call it the um, the sex ad of comedy it's like different areas there's like you can have mainstream which is like a an area of itself but you can also have mainstream mainstream which is like the popular mainstream. Mm. You can also have alternative mainstream which is people like Stuart Lee who are alternative but popular. Um, not popular you, enough for a fourth series of his, yeah. uh, fifth series of his show. <laughs> no, um, you get you know you get alternative and you get um, alternative main, mainstream alternative, which is like I would say James Acaster. That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So, Although I feel like an identity he increasingly tries to push against. Hmm. Whether yeah. he does so successfully, I don't know, but I feel like the Chris Dingle food fight is. Yeah, it's pretty a uh, pretty old idea. Yeah, the, but, and there was like um, I remember there was a show he did in um, a, two years ago uh, that I went to see both in Edinburgh and in Bromsgrove at the Art Tricks because I loved the show so much. And there's a set where he's talking about um, the Pythagoras theorem and he's doing it on like a square chart, but he's doing it in like he's just describing it in such an odd way. And there's also that other set where he um, talks about how he was a um, in um, what's the term? Like a secret policeman. Like he was underco- an undercover cop. That's what I'm thinking of. Oh, yes. Yeah. So that's, like, is that recognised? That was recognised, yeah. Okay. He's, he's an undercover cop and he's like talking about his stories of me and playing the recordings of conversations he's having with this gang. And it's just like, he's being so like 
honest he's trying to be sort of observational about that life as a undercover cop but it's not his life it's not anybody's life really it's just a whole situation that he's making up in such a strange yeah. and funny way and that show has then the double conceit that for the clever people in the audience that the pretending to be an undercover cop is a way of getting over a breakup yes but of course the double conceit is he didn't have a breakup <laughs> yeah um so yeah, incredibly clever, but as you say, it can come across very mainstream and can be very accessible in certain yes. forms. Uh, yeah. So alternative, the... alternative, are you thinking people like Ed Axel and Holly yes. Burns and basically yeah. people, as much as I would say I have a very broad taste in comedy, can sometimes try my patience. Yeah, I was thinking that, like, I remember I went to see the alternative comedy experience in Edinburgh and... Um, um, there were some acts that um, were quite, you know, like there was Stuart Lee there and there was Bridget Christie and they're the, you know, the mainstream alternative in a sense. So they're more accessible. But then there was people like Ed Axel and Grania Maguire and that's where I was just like, mm, it's a bit, bit too strange for me. But then again, um, I went to see Ben Tarje in um, Edinburgh last year and his show was really fun. But it was just, be- I think that was more because it wasn't a normal comedy show. Have you ever, like, seen any of Bentage's stuff? I feel like I've only heard, like, a little bit of it, but I know he's got a really good reputation on the scene. Yes, he is very strange. Like, I think there's a famous, like, when he was in um, the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society, um, I don't know if it was last year or the year before, but there's a bit where um, basically his set was he was lying on stage and he got another comedian, I think it was Matthew Hyten, to um, blow a trumpet that had... Um, a paint roller on it covered in paint and just try to paint his body with the trumpet and the and it was just really weird but it was such a like a, this there's that strangeness that you don't really understand what the hell's going on but it's so funny I mean is it worth saying something about the ACMS and the kind of rules behind that because oh, I think that's yeah, yeah, quite yeah. interesting yes. again in thinking about again I joked at the very start in the preamble what is a joke Mm. Um, oh yeah, joke over joke. No, <laughs> <laughs> that's their slogan. Uh, but yeah, this idea that you're kind of forbidden from doing conventional things, from yeah. doing things that you've done before, mm. that it's like it almost reminds me of some of those more serious societies, like you know the. Um, French writers who banned certain letters or the dogma oh, movement. Oh, the Académie Française, yeah. In a way, in a slightly more freer way, I think, and a more interesting way, <laughs> to take people who are used to doing one thing but have some inherent sense of comedy and therefore those constraints can lead to something really interesting. Yeah. Um, one that was quite interesting from last year's show, I don't... Th- I was... I think it was mentioned just before this, I can't remember the comedian's name, but it was mentioned just before he did this set that it wasn't a normal part of his set. It was just something he decided to do that night. And the story is that while this comedian was um, flying for his own show, he was playing the this audio book in his earphones about, um, it was something about the Holocaust. And so, which had like this music in the background as well as it was playing the audiobook so what he did was he got all these comedians who were um doing you know acms that night to hand out his the flyers for his show while 
it, through the speakers, this audio book was playing, and you just got this weird commotion of people trying to sell a show while you're hearing about um, people dying in gas chambers to somber music. It's just so weird. That's almost beautiful in a way. It is, <laughs> it great. is. I love ACMS. But yeah, there's a borderline kind of of conceptual art and installation going on yeah. at that sort of point. And that's why I think as much as I can joke, you know, what what is a joke? What is what is comedy? But I think that's actually a really vital question because it highlights that loads of stuff is. Yeah, exactly. It's a kind of transmedia concept that can't really be pinned down except kind of fuzzily. Yeah. I mean, like when I was working on my dissertation, because my subject is English language, I had to obviously make it a very linguistic mm. um, essay. But the more I sort of looked into the language of comedy, the more I was sort of like, it's a bit hard to just put it into that little area because as much as I do believe that there is some, there is a, a language or at least a communicative aspect in comedy, obviously, but at the same time when you've got all these different kinds of comedies and you know what's happening like when you know or have seen weirder stuff stuff that doesn't even require words sometimes it's hard to just put pinpoint it into this and squish it into this little box of language yeah you've just inspired a really interesting thought i was going to ask what our first experiences of comedy were. And for it's me, I wrote it down. It's going to be my question. I was, I was thinking, <laughs> but, right, find so I've in. written down my first, when I wrote down what my first experience of comedy was, I wrote down the first live stand-up show I saw. Now, obviously, that wasn't my first experience of comedy for various definitions. But now as you say that, I'm thinking, presumably it was my mum, right? When I was a baby, my first experience of comedy was my mum doing something silly mm. in a kind of attachment-orientated, interactive thing it was peekaboo it was oh, okay. actually i think peekaboo is a great description because of um the concept of surprise in jokes i know yeah. that's an oversimplification <laughs> but for a pre-verbal infant we know that infants pay more attention to things that are surprising mm. um by like eye gaze and stuff you know it, certainly six months but i would say probably is certainly maybe as low as two months or something like that they are intelligent enough to build up predictions in their heads and then notice when those predictions are violated. So maybe our first experience of comedy was so pre-verbal so early on. I mean, I'm not really sure what to, if that really applies to me because I had um, mm. significant language difficulties growing up. Like I didn't, um, I, I think I was in the two word stage when I was six. So that's quite late. That's like four years behind. Mm. And so, and I, I know for a fact that I didn't really have much eye contact when I was younger because I remember being in speech therapy and being like, um, I don't want to say the word forced, but sort of forced to engage in eye contact. Strongly encouraged. <laughs> Strongly encouraged, I suppose, with, you know, a hand on my chin, very lightly saying, look at me, Josie. But... Um, I think oh, it must, it's, I, it's quite different for me because I can't really remember much about when I was younger. Mm. But I do, if I'm going to just sort of break away and talk about like my first experience that I can remember, it would have to be the fact that my parents are massive comedy nerds and were, you know, very into what was in the late 80s, early 90s, the alternative scene. Yeah. 
I watched a lot of alternative stuff. I watched Fist of Fun. That came out when I was born, I think. Um, I watched Harry Hill. In fact, he was my the first comedian I saw live, Harry Hill. Um, I watched League of Gentlemen. I watched Blackadder, all those sort of programs. And I think that, in, and Red Dwarf as well, actually. That's yes. a big one. I can't forget Red Dwarf. Um, and so I guess that engagement kind of, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was writing my dissertation because I made it a reflective piece. So I just wanted to, like, look into how language affect, uh, language or what am I trying to say? How my language processing affected my understanding of comedy growing up. And I was definitely, you know, very more, um, it was definitely much more harder to notice the, like, things that are, I guess, predictable to most people Mm. when I was young. Um, and I had to, and because I watched all this stuff, I guess it kind of created a little, it kind of, I don't want to say it fixed things, but it just adapted my brain, I suppose, to make that, um, make things more understandable. That's really powerful. <laughs> yes, that's, I always want to acknowledge those moments. Maxie, can you think? early experiences of um, comedy. I have an example for myself, but I want to hear from you. Well, my, I feel my, like... my, my twist on this will literally just going to be to like say, the first thing that I consumed media-wise that I like was aware was comedy. Because like, I think that's the thing, is when, when you have that turnaround mm-hmm. moment, you go, this is trying to make me laugh, and like yeah. it's not just a parent or something. So like, it's that, which would be uh, the Asterix and Obelix books. Uh-huh. Okay which uh, did a fantastic job of that. The the one that always sticks vividly in my mind is just like thinking it was the funniest thing in the world was uh, uh, Asterix Goes to the Olympics, which is a a drug and doping storyline, essentially, in a series where the main character gets his powers by drugging himself. And it's absolutely brilliant. Like It's just a a whole thing where the race goes in the Romans' uh, favour and it turns out all their tongues have gone blue because they'd uh, spiked the essentially the steroid drink of the series with a uh, dye as well and it was just it made me laugh so much as a kid and I just I have a really vivid memory of just really enjoying that and thinking that's a funny thing mm. uh, although like in a, in a more entertaining way I could also say as a kid I saw shooting stars and the complete oh, bizarreness of it that. Yeah. oh it just again just uh, Matt Lucas's George Dawes mm. with the scores was just the funniest mm. thing to me as a kid like just getting he's to go and scream baby. he's a baby he's a baby <laughs> Also, where I got my uh, my long term love of Mark Lamar from. I mean, we all get it. It's just where from. <laughs> Indeed, it, it it comes from all over. Uh, oh, I'm just going to stare dreamily off into this as well. I think Mark Lamar, Tim. Okay. Like, give me an <laughs> well, I was going to say, like again, if you're thinking about, yeah, identifiable as something that has the goal of comedy because that's interesting isn't it for the definition of comedy has to try to make you laugh doesn't necessarily have to succeed and things can make you laugh without trying to um i was going to say chuckle vision oh okay and that's a very specific sort of comedy Mm. in that it's a slapstick but b very catchphrase and familiarity based it's very based in uh a a cultural vocal stereotype Mm. Are you saying that it's regionalist? <laughs> I, I'm just saying it, it relies on that familiarity of going that these people from this particular place sound funny and it makes me laugh because kids like funny voices and they 
naturally have voices that, uh, I mean, say someone like me who uh, has basically spent most of his life living in the South, that's hilarious to me because it sounds different. You were in the posh South, though. <laughs> I'm not, I'm in, like, East Sussex. I'm, I'm, I'm near Brighton. I, I'm, in the, I'm in the Kiss Everybody South. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. I never the thought I'd... South. Yeah, yeah. You know why uh, Paul Heaton came up with that name? I do not. Uh, so that all of his uh, fans from Hull would have to say that the South was beautiful or imply it whenever they said the name of the band, um, just to annoy them. Which is weird, because it must annoy him as well. well. I think he tried to make up for it later with uh, his song, Just Loving Manchester, you know. It's such a clever pun. If rain is what makes Britain great, then Manchester is greater. So clever! I love his writing. His writing's fantastic. It, well, we've talked about the beautiful South at length on other shows. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it, it's there'll always be the thing, Tim, where you try and claim that we're whichever comedy pairing you feel like at any moment in time. But we are mostly aware that uh, you're Paul Heaton and I'm Jackie Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Like, I suppose that's good because it means that I've driven off the, like, uh, the red-headed one, right? <laughs> By offending them. <laughs> So, so, so Ben is Brianna Corrigan, um, but it also means at some point you will also leave me and I'll have to find another replacement who will be yeah, there that everyone I'd, forgets. I'd actually leave you for a beautiful reason and then we'd reunite years later to make good music. Yeah, good. Um, sorry, that was me very cynical. I'm just not into them anymore. Anyway, no. The, the, the latest album wasn't very good, but what have we become was, it was classic, Tim. It was classic. Tell us Maybe about comedy. Well, so going back to that first show thing, first live experiences. Mm. Uh, so my first live experience was a pretty amazing one. And I don't, I feel like I stumbled in at like the perfect time uh, for those particular comedians and maybe just in my life. Because it must have been shortly before I went to university, but it was an Edinburgh preview doubleheader in the Mars Bar in Worcester. Ah, uh, the Mars Bar. <laughs> which is... Uh, a, a name that must be a comedy venue because it has a pun. No, I mean, it's mostly like a, a rock venue where you can go and see fake versions of Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I have a story to tell you about the Mars Bar. It's also to do with ACMS. Okay, that's interesting. I didn't I, I want to keep hearing stories about actual live comedy because there's a person with like, well, who used to have quite crippling social anxiety. Like, I've not actually gone to any proper live things. Oh, okay. So, like, I, I I'm fascinating that. by all this. Oh, so have I let you down as co-host now? Do I have to leave? <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's really interesting. I guess <laughs> I had made an assumption that everyone has experienced some measure of live comedy. I, I think I totally have in some way, no. but I, I think it's some sort of memory of like a an NHS charity comedy thing that ended in a full Monty performance that I wasn't allowed to look at. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I, I lived vicariously through live DVDs, which will become very evident later on in the show. So yeah, this was uh, Rod Gilbert and Mark Watson, back when Mark Watson was still Welsh. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, I know, right? Mark Watson. So it must have been, let's see, I went to uni in 07, so it must have been at least 06. Um, I was thinking that, because I think um, when Mock the Week started, Mark Watson was still Welsh at that point. I'd say so, so yeah. Yeah. Because I remember him doing the, um, God, I haven't watched Mock the Week in ages, that little round at the end where they do the like um, improvised bits of the lines. Uh, always... Scenes we'd like to see. That's I like, it, yeah. I, it's very trusting, improvised bits. I mean, that's... It's a very uncynical view. <laughs> they weren't particularly improvised, as you'd know if you've seen any of their stand-up DVDs afterwards. Oh, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> Some was great. Uh, Frank Frankie Boy was also there. Mm. Mm. Mock the Week is a lot better than it used to be because it's is just it? like... Is it still on? Yeah, it's still on. I, I, so if you listen to the ComCom part, which I will mention again later, with Dara O'Brien, he basically goes, I feel very guilty about the whole Frankie era, um, but okay. felt powerless to intervene. Uh, it is only... And then there was like... He says the early era was kind of okay. Then the Frankie era, I'm very sorry. And that the modern era that's basically like Sarah Pascoe and Josh Whittaker, mm. James Acaster and Ed Gamble and people like of that generation is yeah. the most positive, interesting, fun and non-combative that the show has been. And they're yeah. the best. I like that. Cause... When I watched it, like just having Frankie Ball and Russell Howard as well. He was a big oh, part God. of the whole combative thing. I, I was so thoroughly exhausted just that particular era as well where Ricky's race was still doing live DVDs and stuff oh, like yeah. I was con- entirely fed up with comedy that was just about punching down like yeah. to this day I just I can't go near it just that macho comedy thing it, well because it almost is always and yeah, mm, it's pr- yeah it's always men I can't think of a single female comedian who's punched down no. Uh, well no Tina Fey mm. really but, mm. uh, yes but in a way but it's okay because her friends are gay Max <laughs> That's literally I, what she I, says I, in her I, I still really? absolutely adore her work, but don't read her autobiography. Yeah, I mean, again, Tina Fey, uh, my thing until, a, a, I guess, a week ago when I was thinking about this episode was going to be, because we did Kimmy Schmidt season one, talk about Kimmy Schmidt season two, but because in some ways it's so right and in some ways it's so wrong and that's so uh, frustrating I guess Tim I don't mean to remind you of anything but the the second you brought up Kimmy Schmidt 2 as a possible thing to talk about like I was like oh yeah I'll definitely watch that on Netflix and I've told you the stories of me on Netflix I've watched two episodes and I've not watched a single one since not because it's bad because I forget you forget. Like, this is it, why it, I have it, my infinite open tabs policy on my internet browser, because then you cannot forget anything, because it's all there and it takes an hour to load. I have four gigabytes of RAM and Google Chrome. I'm lucky if I can keep five tabs open. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so true. So anyway, yeah, Rod Gilbert, Mark Watson, and one of my defining memories of this gig is that me and my dad were literally just walking in, and we were me and my dad are quite prompt people. Like, I always turn up to gigs, like, shortly before the doors are supposed to open. And it's so the uncool thing to do when no one's there. And so we were arriving just as Mark Watson was, like, going to get something. And we shared an awkward nod as we went past. And, you know, I feel like an awkward nod is the ultimate form of communication for Mark Watson. Yeah. As a very neurotic person, yeah. uh, I, I feel like I connected with him. Because I think he is someone who, at, at the time and ever since, I think I've kind of emulated in my kind of comedic side of really tapping into that like neuroticism and slight I was going to say pettiness that sounds quite critical I don't mean it but focusing on frivolities for kind of comedic effect like the name of this show is inspired by Mark Watson the whole Tim and Max do whatever uh, think is based yeah. on Mark Watson makes the world substantially better. Why did we not call the show Tim and Max do whatever? How much easier would that be? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, because I like the, ob- you know, Mark Watson makes the world substantially better is a long winded title for a Radio 4 show. And so for a podcast, I just took that to the next level with uh, Tim and Max solve all the problems of popular culture, because not only is it long, but it's also semantic or syntactically I don't know the difference Josie maybe you can help syntactically uh, you're looking for syntactically ambiguous 
yes. as to whether we're solving all the problems that popular culture has, which is what it was, or mm. solving all the problems by utilising popular culture. And that'll be when we get the most feedback, it's back when we confuse people. Um, whereas um, now people just can't remember the title because it's learned yeah. everything they know about life and popular culture. Well, the important thing is that when they think of us, they think of Sam and Max Freelance Police because we that's really funny. Back on the comedy. <laughs> Um, oh, but yeah, I, I say that that was actually the funniest cartoon when I was a child. You see, I didn't know it existed. Like to me, it's a LucasArts adventure game that I haven't played, having played all of the other ones, including The Dig. Uh, I will send you a copy of that game. You watch me. <laughs> I do have the Telltale version. I just haven't gotten around to playing it. Oh no! Don't do that. Okay. Uh, anyway, where were we? Yeah, Tim. Mark so, for, so yeah, story. and so watch this, and just you know, I clearly watch stand up on TV and watched comedy shows and panel shows and sitcoms but there is something transformative about the live experience oh, when I was definitely. writing my notes I kind of linked it to therapy because of course I do mm. but this idea that you use yourself as an instrument to change people's emotions that by your words you induce emotion I know that's kind of art as a whole it's creativity as a whole but there's something very powerful about the way that you bring your prepared stuff but you also have a brain that works on the unprepared stuff so the funniest bit was a bit where uh, Rod Gilbert uh, was talking to the woman who was sat directly next to me about her dog and how um, she had some issue with her dog being black and so he turned it into the fact that she was a dog racist. Um, and then for some reason, sex toys came into it as well. well and so all of a sudden, there's this kind of complete improvisation around this woman's strange thing that she said about dogs and playing on her embarrassment and callbacks to it. And this just, I guess I've never really experienced just how powerful you can be by picking up something, holding onto it, using kind of your memory to bring it back occasionally. And I think I love, I love callbacks, even when they're really cheap. Mm. I love callbacks. I and mean, that's the entire reason why I love Dara O'Brien's uh, stand-up comedy. Mm. You know, to, yeah, structure it in so kind of integrally as Dara kind of does is amazing. Um, and I suppose in different ways, yeah, some of the comedians that we really admire do it because there's something powerful about the way that plays on memory. Yeah. It, it kind of makes the gig a bit more intimate in a way. It's mm. like this is a shared conversation as opposed to I'm just repeating the same stuff I repeat every single day to thousands of people. Yeah. And that's why I love previews, because mm. when previews things go wrong, or even when things go oh, wrong. Yeah. So, like James A. Castro, yeah. when I saw him, I saw him do Lawnmower, the show before Recognise. Oh, yeah. And there's a bit in that show where he shouts in an audience member's face very aggressively, why do you hate Yoko Ono? For a few times, yeah. I think. Yeah. Now, normally, well, I say normally, I actually don't know, because I only saw it in Exeter. Mm. He supposedly warns people this is going to happen. Hmm. And in the Exeter show, he didn't, and then became incredibly apologetic that he had screamed in a person's face without warning them that this was going to happen. Now, I don't know if he did warn people or whether that other thing was a conceit. But at the time, it felt like something has happened accidentally. Mm. And there's something brilliant because it means that something is real, even if the, it's rehearsed, mm. that it's imperfectly recreated and therefore yeah personal and real in a way that something that is filmed 
to a greater or lesser extent can't be yeah one of the um uh, when i was in edinburgh in 2014 for the festival one of the things that really stuck to me was when i went to see casual violence and um there's i know this wasn't supposed to happen because one of the people like one of the actors in casual violence his character has no arms okay and there's there's like just before this character walks onto the stage um one of the other actors like shot some water out of their mouth like a you know that supr- that reaction yeah. spurt and this this actor with no arms slipped on that water and ev- and you could just like everybody was dying because it was just like a proper slapstick whoop bam fall and it he wasn't hurt <laughs> Fine. But the fact that everybody, even everybody in casual violence, just broke, and it was just so funny. It's just that moment of like, this is this is only this only happened in this moment, and it hasn't happened any hasn't happened before, and I don't think it's happened since. Yeah, I just love it. Mm. It's brilliant. And yeah, I think I suppose sometimes I've even preferred shows that aren't working. I'm yeah. sure I've talked about this on the podcast before, but. The thing that should have been my comedy debut was at a place called the Ministry of Mirth in Oxford, mm. uh, a show that was later run by Ivo Graham. So if I'd been a bit more into trying to do my live comedy in uh, my third year, I would have become friends with Ivo Graham, and this would be a very different um, <laughs> situation. And I would be in a, you know, I, no, I'm sure I wouldn't have been learned. Be in a better standard. podcast with a different person. Yeah, yeah. I'm getting the messages, Tim. I'm, I'm no, 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 no. I'm saying I would be a, a have quit comedy and sadness and be a psychologist anyway but regret more my inability to have succeeded in stand-up because uh, at least with my relative level of inexperience I could pretend that if I were to work harder I would have anyway oh, so you mean you can maintain the illusion of just having not tried in this reality pretty much <laughs> that's how it works is I can feel wistful when I listen to the comedians comedian podcast and the real deep process stuff and think oh how would I do this and that and that and this and that and imagine it without having to go yeah but it's really hard yeah. um so anyway at this particular gig uh which uh unfortunately kind of went on hiatus and the organizer didn't get reorganized about it before I got to the name top of the list by a couple of weeks um which given that my whole material was uh, imagining I was doing comedy that had been written for a fictional woman. That was like the conceit, the containing conceit. I don't know how, it might've worked really well. It was an Oxford crowd, but yeah, a guy did like 15 minutes on Plato that only I got at that club and it was a disaster. And he was literally kind of pulled off the stage, but it was really good for me. It was a very personal thing. And he was almost very much like honing in on me and being like, well, as long as this guy is getting it and finding it funny, I'm just going to carry on and carry on. Um, Like no non-live comedic experience really could replicate something so personal that stuck with me to this day. Um, When I was in, I'm just going to say McKinleth and be an English pleb. Um, When I was in McKinleth earlier this month, um, I heard a story about how um, in the first year, I think it was, of the festival when it started like six years ago, Mike, Bub- Mike Bubbins did a show and it was in a tiny sort of little room. The, o- the only person that bought a ticket for that show was Nick Helm. Okay. And so Nick Helm just decided to sit there and Mike Bubbins just did this 
whole show, like there was a huge audience, not even like looking at Nick Helm directly, just looking all around the crowd of empty seats. And Nick Helm just felt so comfortable being in that show because of the way Mike Bubbins performed it, that he just laughed so loudly, even though he was the only person in the audience. And um, Nick Helm still considers that one of his favourite gigs of all time that he ever went to, just because he was the only person there, but it felt so like... Like, he, he wasn't the centre of attention because of that. Yeah, that's really, yeah, really brave, I guess, mm. of Mike mm. to to approach it in that way. Instead of giving up, mm. I suppose, because you can imagine the temptation. It looks yeah. like it'd be said, Mechinlef. I'm, really I'm really bad at the double L. Uh, I'm a disappointment to my mother's side of the family as such. I am an awful half Welshman. You're a half Welsh person. I didn't realise you were half Welsh. How have we not talked about You're learning this? a lot about him today, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I really am. No, but, you know, my girlfriend is half Welsh, you know. And but uh, in, in very vague terms, chemistry yeah, with half Welsh people. <laughs> clearly, we all just want to sleep with you, Tam. They're <laughs> <laughs> uh... not full Welsh people. They, they, they don't get it. No, exactly. It has to be that perfect... Perfect they need the balance. cultural touchstone of uh, English politeness to really kind of get your comedy stylings. <laughs> See, uh, I'm, I'm a quarter Welsh, so it, it just yeah. never should have worked. <laughs> yeah, there you go, too diluted. Um, so, basically, Tim, the, the message here is that you've got to like step up your game because you're you're not nearly Welsh enough. I don't. Have, well, no, I'm not. I'm not Welsh at all. I'm a quarter <laughs> Scottish, which again is not really Scottish enough. Um, it's not a real place. <laughs> Although I had an interesting conversation the other day about Scottish stereotypes. Um, apparently, like the kind of Scottish Yorkshire, because that's my other part of my background, stereotypes of kind of stintiness. Like there's a lot of parallels with uh, the with Gujarat in India, mm. that people kind of treat that in very much similar or as kind of certainly stingy, but also maybe a bit duh as well. Um, so it's interesting, I guess, every nation perhaps picks its particular areas to treat as certain stereotypes, but the stereotypes are kind of similar. It's just you find a region that vaguely matches that and kind of roll with it. Yeah. Should there's, we, there's some a... other sort of key ideas. So I'm just, just looking at how we're doing for time. Um, like, obviously, I don't have this room for life thing, but I, I think we should go for both your favourite stand-up comedian oh, and who you consider the best of all time because these can be two removed things so i'm going to see what people come up with here see i try i tried to come up with a metric for best my metric oh. was laughs per minute now that's a very problematic <laughs> metric because it gives a very clear answer for me uh which is ross noble okay uh but that's just because of the hair though right no, no, no. Ross Noble is the person who has most incapacitated me with laughter, has most hurt me with laughter. But no, has made me laugh the most within the time frame of, a, admittedly, a Ross Noble show is usually quite long. Um, <laughs> Favourite. That is so tough. Um, I'd be inclined towards Andy Zaltzman because I think he is so clever with his illusions and his politics and yet also so silly but he sometimes doesn't necessarily confidently deliver and has a bit of a low energy thing that doesn't always work so well. So in terms of the kind of energy, ironically, I guess, um, 
that doesn't always connect. But I admire him an awful lot. Well, I feel like that's important to a favourite as well, is to kind of be like, I know they're not the best, I just like them a lot. Yeah. Like, despite, despite or perhaps because of their flaws. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I would probably consider, I mean, it's the most generic answer I could possibly give, but, like, the one I would consider the greatest of all time would be Richard Pryor, uh, particularly latter-day Richard Pryor, who's just had routines that... I, I mean, I cherish the DVDs of them, which is some of the best stuff that's both uh, problematic at times because it's also of its time and the culture surrounding it all. Yeah. But, like, sometimes incredibly thoughtful. I mean, it, his entire thing of his journey to Africa and how it, like, was both a funny routine and him just talking sincerely about how it affected his perception of, uh, you know, use of the N-word, uh, the, the actual one, not... I'm not going into Louis C.K. thing about saying that. Uh, and it was just absolutely fantastic. But my favourite would be Eddie Izzard, because uh, without Eddie Izzard, I wouldn't be the half a man I am today. I feel like I've got that phrase wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, no, I think, I think for people who have a connection with Eddie Izzard, it's more than just the comedy mm. that has mm. inspired them. It's yeah, something like the, about his persona as well. There's the something about his persona, his energy, like his like early... This is mostly applying to earlier ideas. I've got to say, I'm not much of a fan of his more recent stuff, like as of stripped forwards. Mm. But uh, like just a young one with like the, the, the youthful zeal, like the, the fake sense of improv. Like there, there are some creative input there, but it's yeah. that he's worked out how to deliver stuff in a way that makes it sound off the cuff whilst it also being incredibly calculated and brilliant mm. and just his willingness to examine and talk about like his uh, enjoyment of just wearing women's clothes and makeup like that's to, to, to someone like me that's a little bit important it's just kind of like awesome that the frankness someone could have about themselves whilst also trying to make you laugh yeah yeah mm. I mean I'm inclined then of saying favourites maybe, maybe I'd even say James A. Caster. I've seen I, his I show three that, years yeah. in a row. He is my style icon. <laughs> you know, there is something about his gentle awkwardness that I really connect with on a personal level. I met him once and he was really friendly. Mm. Um, you know, which is not a surprise. Most comedians are. Uh, yeah, but, yeah, I guess I do feel some kind of that he could be, yeah, favourite because I've never gone to one of his shows and left unsurprised or disappointed. It's always been something special, and I've almost made a thing now of I'm going to see his show every year. There's no other comedian where I would make that kind of commitment. Best of all time. So I was thinking about, like, impact, you know. Um, yeah, I was thinking about that as well, because um, every oh, year... makes it hard. Yeah. Every year I go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I always... I always have one show that just absolutely blows my mind. Uh, the first show I went in 2012 was Humphrey Carr's The McWatson Nazi Smasher. I could have, and that was, I nearly didn't even see that because I was very close to seeing Pappy's Flatshare Slamdown being recorded in Edinburgh that year. That was the episode with Nick Helm and Sarah Pascoe, I think. And, um, and, but it sold out, so me and one of my friends went to see Humphrey Carr instead. And the way he performed it was just, it was just so fluent and so, like, the, the use of words, yeah, his use of 
language, but also just how he performs each character. Because it's a one-man stage. One, it's just one man on stage trying to perform all these characters and tell a story. And it's just so well done. And it absolutely blew my mind. Um, trying to think. 2013. Oh, I can't remember 2013, which is a shame. I definitely know it blew my mind because I was only there for two weeks. Um, so it was like... I didn't see that much that year. 2014 was James Acaster's Recognize. That blew my mind. Um, 20, last year, I, I was going to say it was Chris Coltrane, but I think it more, I think looking back, it might, might have been John Luke Roberts' show. No, that was it. 2013 was John Luke Roberts' show because that was the NAD up and that was so much fun. And in last year's uh, show, it was all about his dad. He literally dressed up like his dead dad in a clowny sort of way and it was such a weird mix between humor and a actual mental breakdown it was just so fascinating to watch yeah so i guess when you're thinking about yeah that balance obviously like none of us have said stuart lee and i'm surprised because mm. there's got to be people who could contend yeah that he is up there when you're thinking of best of all time I think um, with, with the ability to see behind the curtain with like how he will do the the annotated show scripts and stuff like it, it does give a really strong case because like you can not only see how well he does like how good his material is but also the actual a bit of the actual process involved so it, it would be kind of convincing if it weren't the fact that I don't think he even thinks he's even remotely good I mean he, he took the piss out of himself for being the 41st best stand up on yeah. Channel 4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I had a look at that list, uh, and I... I it's, it's actually quite a good one, but every now and then I just remember that tastes really do become yeah. diverse. Oh, is it that... one that's kind of quite time-bound? Yeah, was, I, that, was that like 10 years ago that came out? Uh, the, the last one, I think, was 2011. They, they do it they every time. They go up to 8th. In the uh, I, I think he cracked really? the top 10 in the end, but I mean, that's a top 10 also. In fact, I think Lee Evans dropped out of the list by a considerable oh, distance okay. as well. Who, I mean, he's not for me, but that surprises me just for someone who's got the uh, the fan base he does. Hmm. But like Ricky Gervais was third, and I, I don't know what to do with that. Oh, no. That literally makes me nauseous. How terrible <laughs> is that? I shouldn't be so judgmental. That's the only... But it's Ricky Gervais, though. That's the problem. I was going to say, I think he's the only comedian that provokes that reaction. I don't think, it, like... Even Andrew Lee Francis. Oh, oh uh, but Andrew Lawrence. I think Lee, and, Lee Francis, I, I don't mean to say it, but he has a purity about him that I kind of admire. Really? <laughs> well, also, I don't, I don't he does think know he's what good, he's doing, but... why he's doing it. I can't remember who I was listening to being interviewed, but they were contrasting Lee Francis and Dapper Laughs. Oh, it was Rufus Hound, who obviously oh. worked quite closely with Lee Francis. Mm. And it was about the intentionality. Yeah, that Dapperlaff says these things because he's actually a terrible person. Lee yeah. Francis does this stuff because he thinks it's funny to pretend to be this person. And even though there's a blurring of those lines... Uh, as Robin Thicke would say. And you someone's going to make that joke. I feel ashamed. Blurred lines existed as a concept <laughs> before Robin Thicke. Oh. Yeah, I know, but it's a, it's the closest we'll ever come to a current reference to <laughs> That's so true. Oh, oh I really three should... years ago. I'm back in an office where I'm listening to where there's like a radio on in the office, but it's Heart FM, so like it's not really helping with the whole contemporary thing. 
Not that, but I feel like that's the one thing I, that I should get because I hate having like popular music on because I'm that guy. But I feel like at least I should get some kind of insight into the real, the real contemporary world or something out of that. And I don't because it's hard well, to just listen to something that's almost contemporary enough, at least music-wise, that it feels like you're being current. Like listen to Grimes because Grimes is great, and people in like mainstream interest have heard of her, but she's not popular enough to be a big deal so it's like you can be like oh yeah i'm relevant but also still pretending to be hipster and stuff i'm still thinking about the greatest of all time thing part of me want to say john stewart mm. again i guess because Why? i'm thinking about i guess influence which is interesting because it's almost oh, like i'm not yeah, saying he's maybe. the greatest of all time because of comedy i'm saying he's the greatest of all time because in terms of what he did in the culture and discourse as a comedian. So it's almost like there's two things. Who is the best comedian qua comedian? I, I feel like I would take the cheat there and say Stephen Colbert, though, because he did it whilst being a bit less of an arsehole. Uh, I'm one of those people who prefer Stuart to Colbert. I, I have to admit it. Hand up. Well. I know, I know. It's an unacceptable opinion. <laughs> See, I would have put Stuart Lee in that sort hmm. of area. Because he was one, he was there during you know the development of what is now mainstream comedy, but was alternative in the eighties and the nineties. And the fact that he's still in that alternative area is obviously he's obviously still quite a big influence on people. Yeah, I mean, if you if you wanted to go for a deep cut, you could then look at the sort of people that had effects on him, like uh, Jerry Sadowitz, even. Mm, that's a good point. Who I've been trying to remember the name of for this entire episode because <laughs> it's difficult. Do you get blocked by Seinfeld? I find my slightly dyslexic brain because they have the same, you know, first name and then an S gets kind of blocked on them. So in my head, Jerry Sadovitz is just Seinfeld wearing like some really horrendous clothes and makeup because I've never seen what Sadovitz actually looks like. <laughs> I've only seen that one photo of him where he's like screaming into the camera. He's got that like cat's eye um, contacts on. Okay, so not that far off my mental. (laughs) 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 Yeah, because then I was thinking, I don't know, Steve Martin? But then I've never really seen much. I've seen bits of his stand up. I've never seen like the the whole show. I mean, maybe even. Have you ever watched the start of Raw? Have you ever watched Eddie Murphy talk for five to ten minutes about how much he hates gay people? Because, man, no. Okay. Yeah, no, I haven't. I'm thinking more. <laughs> Not necessarily about what I know, but again, what's in the discourse. But that yeah. really doesn't make the discourse. But then no, I suppose well, you're saying it's, about it's, it's his only show that's on Netflix. Okay. Um, but yeah, Richard Pryor as well. Never watch uh, his earlier show that's on DVD. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But like, th- there's a certain thing where I think... The comedians who I think you can say are great, possibly even the greatest, you have to look at their later work because the idea is, is they've grown. Like, Stuart Lee doesn't really have a lot of fondness for his pre noughties work because, I mean, like, he, he retired a lot of that stuff for it not working. Mm. Yeah, I he, think he swings a bit too far the other way. Mm. But then in my head, really, all I want is for him and Richard Herring to be together again. <laughs> in every sense of that. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I feel like is your subtle code for like calling out for Ben Fell. Uh, Just you, you, you want your herring back. Wait, no, which one of you was herring? I'm oh, the herring. I'm situation. obviously the herring. <laughs> I'm on the look. Which one of us has an autobiographical show? 
essentially, <laughs> and which one of us is like vaguely reclusive but much cooler for it. He is much cooler than you. It is true. <sighs> Don't remind. <laughs> I had to live with that for years. I still have to live with it inside myself. Um, okay, so. I guess the answer is it's really hard to work out which is yeah. A, our favourite, and B, the greatest. Does anyone have suppose... things to say on that? Uh... Uh... I, I feel like it'd be a lot easier to say the ones who are the worst, like, okay. that well, are popular, but I, I'm not sure that's a healthy road to go down. Well, it, there's a... There's a a te- psychological technique that basically says if you look at the contrasts it draws something out that might be positive so the worst we kind of all mentioned that we don't really like Ricky Gervais but yeah. anyone else who you'd put up there as someone well, like, don't like the answer comedians love saying is Peter Kay because he doesn't make jokes he makes references but even then I wouldn't really call him bad he's just no. he he's not a comedian's comedian he's for the people who just want to be told that Bullseye was a funny show which it kind of was. Darts. Mm. A bit weird. Yeah, I find it really hard to dislike comedy. I'll be honest. Yeah, same. Like, when I was in um, in the kind in the, of um, earlier this month, I was working now, I was stewarding for a venue, and um, there were people, like, pe- when I was, like, watching all these shows, People genuinely, as they were leaving the venue, went up to me and said, oh, you really enjoyed that show, didn't you? And I was like, oh, I was just, I was just laughing, I suppose. <laughs> Apparently, I laugh quite a lot. Hmm. That's uh, a reputation well, I have. Yeah. Well, yeah, literally, I've had comedians comment on my laugh at mm. shows or in tweets afterwards. Um, like, not tweets in general, but if I've tweeted them saying, oh, it was a great show, oh, I loved your laugh, that kind of stuff. Because my laugh is kind of, I inherit it from my mum. It's effusive and it's frequent. It's like, very recognisable as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I bet. Um, so, yeah, there's something about, there's a few people who I really don't get on with and I think it does connect to their personality. So I guess yeah. with Ricky Gervais, it's about the arrogance, it's about the, I mean, there is something about the new atheist stuff that gets to yeah. me, um, you know, which I don't think is just because I have a faith. It's more like the way of going. If you want to hear more about this, uh, listen to the dissecting worlds that are on because me and um, Clarky, not that one, and uh, Matt <laughs> not, basically not talk at length about how as a neo-pagan, a Christian, and an atheist, new atheism is really the thing that we don't like. I feel, I feel like we may have talked on an earlier episode about how both of us can't really deal with new atheists, but I may have just said it as atheists the whole time because I generalised horribly. Sure. I mean, but like Robin Ince has said an awful lot about mm. that. And, you know, Robin Ince has gone to do stuff like at Greenbelt, the Christian Arts Festival. Like, so there is something about, yeah, it's not even comedians. Like, you know, and even like someone like Tim Minchin, who very much is that sort of person, I, I guess I forgive a lot more because he doesn't come across as an unpleasant person. Yeah, exactly. He comes across as a person whose early life experience makes total sense of why he has that position. Yeah. And otherwise seems quite charming and nice and wanting to be positive about humanity. So, yeah, I guess sometimes, like, sometimes Jimmy Carr, again, it's like the uh, idea that you probably wouldn't want to be around him. No, and he can like, still tell some great jokes. But I feel like the persona is what's really important. I suppose that's the thing, is bad comedy comes down to which comedian would you not want to be friends with? 
Mm. This is the only live show I've ever walked out of. Mid-show was Jimmy Carr in Edinburgh. Um, I know. It was, it was because I think at that time I sort of learned, I was, I mean, not just because I was in a bad spot mentally, but also because I kind of learned a lot more about, I guess, myself mm. and how I feel about things. And the fact that it never really, like, this kind of jokes, the dark humour that Jimmy Carr has, and the fact that it often comes across as quite insulting, mm. like, like you know, playground bullying sort of thing, it just didn't sit well with me and I just had to leave. I think that's good. I think that there is a massive value in, and I think this is where knowing what a bad comedian is is important, is kind mm. of learning how you know learning who you are through their own material even if the main thing is you going i can't stand this sort of thing they're spitting out like i'm gonna walk away from this Mm. i've just thought of an example of someone who really i kind of reacted against quite vigorously uh quite recently and again i was gonna say i don't know if you'd even call him a comedian is there any greater burn than that is uh dj and presenter uh, or is it they say on uh, Robin and Joseph's Little Shambles? Uh, DJ presenter and broadcaster uh, John Holmes. Um, and partly it was because he said some things about Oscars So White that mm. very much failed to recognise, I guess, not just failed to recognise the structurality, that's not really a word, but the structurality of racism, mm. but kind of treated people who th- thought oh, these aren't based on merit alone, were somehow idiots and that he saw it a lot more clearly. And he, I, I guess I've been more and more annoyed by his appearances on The Now Show, which have a kind of small C conservatism. And there's something about conservatism and satire. And I mean, The Now Show is kind mm. of that weird. I wanted to talk about satire and I wanted to talk about Radio 4. Um, because I think satire is very important to me. And some of the comedy writing I try to do, I've tried to write for News Jack. And I've never got anything on because I'm too angry. Or at least at the time I was regularly writing that. was too angry. Or too many of my jokes were about, like, the uh, differences between, like, EU states. Because I'd read the middle of The Guardian. I had a really good Mm. bit that was only relevant for about a day. Because there was a day in which Slovenia basically had to decide whether Greece stayed in the Euro or not. Um, and I had this whole conceit about how Slovenia was going around all the other member states going, so uh, tell me, have you ever mistaken us for Slovakia? Because I I think basically our decision is going to be based on, uh, you know, your economy basically is going to live or die on whether you ever mistook us for Slovakia. Um, I was really happy with it, but it's (laughs) not kind of BBC, you know, understandable. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Tim, I would like you to just 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 to torture yourself a little, just edit in a little tumbleweed noise. Oh, no, no. As, as if we ever do that much. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. No, I'm not objecting to that. I'm objecting to the having to edit it in. I do have a tumbleweed somewhere for the... Because I think we had one on a Psychomedia soundboard. But yeah, um, so John Holmes, I, the conservatism on what was a satirical show really kind of got on my nerves in a slightly excessive sort of way. Yeah. I just threw myself a horrible snap judgment because I had that moment of not remembering who he was, looked him up, saw his face, and went, oh, yeah, no, that, 
that looks like the sort of person I don't want to have anything to do with and close the browser again. <laughs> I, I, when when I unfollowed him, I did a bit of a huff because I said, obviously, on the Now Show, the running joke about him is that he is a small man. What I didn't realise is that the sense in which he is a small man is in the sense of bigotry. So, you know, so very self-righteous. You're not just talking about, like, the angry small man syndrome? No, no. No, it's... just him actually being small-minded and awful. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, satire. Yeah, I know. Like, satire, that branch of um, comedy... It's really interesting in British culture because obviously mm. some of the key alternative stuff, you know, uh, Ben Elton even, Alexei Sale, hugely satirical sort of people, spitting image, you know, was considered this vital show at the time. Although I think a lot of people now say, but all the establishment people seem to like it too and what that means. But then some shows seem to masquerade as satire. And then when you encounter real satire, you know, people like Andy Zaltzman and Nick Doody and... I always find it interesting that Lee and Herring have a lot of mockery for Rory Bremner, but uh, always obviously worked with John Colshaw. Because when I was growing mm. up, like the relationship between who is the serious satirist and who is the kind of frivolous person who makes obvious observations was very much, you know, the Dead Ringers TV show with John Colshaw, whereas Bremner, Bird and Fortune was a very serious, dense satirical show. Which I talked about on the last episode, I think, anyway. Um, but yeah, like Mock the Week is ostensibly topical. Have I Got News for You is this weird thing that is sometimes satirical and sometimes not, depending on, you know, whether they've got someone like uh, Bridget Christie or Nish Kumar yeah. or someone on. Well, I'm of the mind that Have I Got News for You is a dangerous show because, I mean, it's how we go and get a classist, racist mayor of London, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's got the power yeah. to do the worst things possible. And all because a man did too much cocaine. Do you, do you think that if Zach Goldsmith had gone on instead of Sadiq Khan, because Sadiq Khan, I think, won, I say one point, was very self-effacing on Have I Got News For You before the election. He seemed I like a nice guy. I haven't watched Have I Got News for so long I didn't realise that okay. been Yeah, it. same. I'm, I'm still very committed to the show because I don't like giving things up, I guess. <laughs> no, I still think it has... I mean, very much host and um, guest-dependent good episodes. And I like Ian Hislop an awful lot. I think Private Eye is a very important piece of journalism. I don't think it's really about the satire. It's about the, you know, Phil Hammond writing his medical columns and stuff and the investigative journalism because it's the only thing that still seems to do that properly. That's what I say, yeah. I like that he looks like a caricature without actually having to be drawn. <laughs> <laughs> not even in a negative way it's just it's the unreal way he smiles it's both unnerving and charming in a way that just makes you want to sketch him so yeah I don't know if you guys have any thought on that political dimension of comedy whether you like it you dislike it you think it's kind of pointless or you think that the examples we have don't work it's just, I, difficult. It's just difficult because I only just recently started getting or at least I started reading more about politics because um it's like i think ever since the conservatives got in last year that's when i started getting more into it but so so like but then i kind of stopped watching television really so i don't watch panel shows like mocks a week or have i got news for you anymore so they it doesn't really make make an, an effect on me I, I want to say the horrible cop-out that I do whenever we talk about politics, Tim, and just say that everything is politics. But, like, specifically, like, political 
humour is... Uh, it's an odd thing. Because, I mean, it can go one way, it becomes a powerful way of, like, fighting back against a situation where you feel disenfranchised through making everyone laugh, or mm. being the people who are laughing, or you're Ben Elton, which is the worst possible thing to be. <laughs> Uh, because therein lies a man who considered himself so apolitical in his early days and then became a person who could uh, throw together a performance to celebrate George W. Bush Jr. So it's like... Mm. It's now a bad time to say that I think We Will Rock You was a good musical. Uh, it's not why a bad time to say it? it, but you're I've wrong. Never seen it, I don't know. I've just heard Wait. so much about it. As a person who has a lot of feelings about musicals, I can tell you it's shit. Okay. Yeah, but do you have a lot of feelings about Queen? Uh, that depends if I'm allowed to start talking about apartheid. Oh, you know that they didn't do it. Um, oh, they, they did it because they believe music should be for everyone, artistic freedom. It's like, yes, but you're still assholes, even if you are led by a very attractive asshole with a moustache. I suppose would be a hairy bumhole. I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Uh, but like, yeah. So I, I don't have the strongest attachment to Queen. They're, they're not, they're not my Bowie. They're not my Prince. You know. So yeah. this, this has been a sadder year than when I was two years old or whenever Freddie Mercury died because I didn't understand it then. Uh, or, but also, if Freddie Mercury had lived to the same age as those other luminaries, you would have minded more about Prince and Bowie. Whereas for me, Queen was a big part of my household growing up. Well, Queen was a massive part of me growing up, and I just think as time's gone on, I've become the sort of person who uh, draws lines in the sand in ways that kind of just make me seem petty. Seem. I mean, like, I'm not saying that... Yeah, anyway, let's not get into yeah. the... How do we get to the ethics of Queen? Like, unless we can use this as a well, springboard the, the point, to talk the... about the comedian John Robbins, which, you well, know, I This was just... This was oh, just yeah, John the... Robbins. Oh, yeah. It's just a political humour thing, I think is what it was. It's just that... Uh, Ben Elton, who is also a false cockney, uh, that's not actually true, but he does present very well for it. Uh, you know, he, he is the marker of when political humour can go wrong, when it seems like the person's presented themselves with a set of values and then stopped having them at a certain point. Mm. Uh, but but other people do it fine. Uh, did, did we say Alexi Sale earlier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It does, does it incredibly fine. Uh, but that, that's me being the miserable sort. Yeah, but you're right in terms of does it comfort the afflicted or does it in comforting the afflicted kind of therefore not lead to action? I mean, that's kind of one of the things that got me into when Chris Coltrane because his was more of a like, you know, consolidating the afflicted because he was, I think... Out of all the, like, any satirical, or at least anybody who talked about politics in Edinburgh last year, he was the only person who actually talked about what happened to the to the benefit cuts and mm. the disabled people who have died out of a result of it. He was the only person who talked about that. And I think that's one of the, probably one of the reasons why I quite like that, because just, like, as, a, as an autistic person who has been given benefits in the past to actually have someone actually talk about that is very um i guess invalid validating mm. Mm. yeah I, I was gonna go full tumble with that i was gonna say it makes it feel really like important this is important yes. sort of thing but yeah like, exactly it, it really is just acknowledging that something's 
wrong whilst, mm. you know, even if it's part of a comedy routine. That's a big deal. Yeah. A lot yeah. of it's, it's quite difficult because, like, um, disability, I guess, is a bit of a taboo in comedy unless you are a disabled comedian. And that's just... And the problem, I guess, with disabled uh, disability in comedy is that is it is often referring to physical disabilities, and like that makes sense because you know they are sort of the forefront of dis of like disability rights and advocacy, but at the same time it completely ignores and often really degrades um, neurodivergent people like and or mentally ill people even when comedians them- themselves um, have a lot of mental health problems. It's just very, like, uh, being a neurodivergent person and getting into comedy, it does alienate you sometimes. Just, like, the language that's being used, the way um, so much is just assumed about people in general that you don't relate to at all. The fact that, oh, God, there's that Twitter page called Yes, That's the Joke. I hate that so much. I I despise the... The, the whole meme thing of that's a joke anyway because it's yeah it's for, like the gag in the Simpsons was that the the joke was bad and he had to yeah. point it out because it wasn't a joke and they've Nothing. turned it into this sort of patronising like oh you didn't get my joke thing which mm. the irony of them not getting the joke that they based the thing on is oh it makes me mad I know exactly and like it's just it's just so horrible like as I mean considering that now I understand things in like jokes a bit easier it's a bit more of a natural process I I suppose but when I was younger it just didn't make sense to me at all it wasn't something that it was something that had to be spelled out to me and so hearing even comedians that I like and I and who seem who are absolutely lovely like I've met them and they are absolutely lovely and they're just they're retweeting this yes that's the joke and they're obviously mocking people for on Twitter for not getting something that like, it's written word as well. Mm. You can't understand these things straight away when it's just written word. I mean, that Tone word so lacks... Important. Yeah, it's, it's why sarcastic humour is the absolute bane of the internet because in mm. text form, it's just... It's either unreadable or, like, you have to really, like, give it the benefit of the doubt. Exactly. It's just, like, this annoying thing that, of assumption that everybody gets it. Just because you made the joke, oh, I get, I get my own joke, so obviously everybody else is going to get it, when that's not the case at all. It's never going to be the case. And I don't get that, like, what, I just don't get why people are so annoyed about that. It just makes them look so, like such a dick, to be honest. And, and that's the thing. It's like, that's the worst thing to be while you're trying to be funny. It's just being a horrendous dick. Mm. Like, I mean, I, I don't want to constantly keep beating on Ricky Gervais, but... You yeah. look at the way he responds to people. I mean, you look at the whole thing that I'm I'm going to immediately apologise for use of the word, but his, like, endless defence of his want to use the word mong, and it's like... Yes, oh my God. It's not a defensible stance, and he's such an indignant prick about it. It's, it's so frustrating. He's, he's also using it with the... Um, again, like, sort of apologies for using this, the word retard as well. It's like oh, it's God. not his place to use it because he's not a part of that group, not at all. It should be people with Down syndrome who are talking about the word mong, and it should be developmentally disabled people talking about the word retard. It's not, he's, he, he is just like, and I think a lot of comedians kind of forget that as well, not just Ricky Gervais, but mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, there is, 
things are definitely getting better. They're definitely better oh, than yeah, I mean, we're past the point of people just, like, spitting out faggot like it's perfectly normal. Yeah. Like, we're, we're making small strides, but there's still so much, especially in the minute details of things when they're just not really being considerate of... I mean, particularly of neurodivergent people. Oh, I said that weirdly. Need water. Um, Isn't there something to be said? I'm just thinking, like, how the intersection of defences of free speech and privilege... So, for Ricky Gervais, there's no domain in which he would need to understand a reason why a word might be problematic. And so it feels incredibly threatening to him that a word could be taken away from him because he's not really had that sort of thing where discourse is taken away from him yeah. because he's a person who, as far as I know, because I presume that he doesn't have an invisible disability or anything like that, yeah. that he, um, I suppose you can still have the kind of false consciousness thing of yeah. whether people might try and defend that, not understanding the way in which they've experienced similar things and oppression of themselves. But in general, it is those very privileged people. But um, yeah, I, I want to go back to the thing, Josie, you said about people who um, are probably quite unwell and who can talk about it really powerfully and yet the language that they use then tries to distance them from it and it can be very alienating. Mm. So I talked before on this show about how much I love Richard Herring's The Twelve Tasks of Hercules Terrace. Mm. because I think that is an incredibly interesting exploration of a a man at quite an unwell time Uh, without contextualising it in an unwell way he contextualises it both as disaster and triumph and really merges those things and it's incredibly interesting human and yet connectable with ideas of being low with being obsessive, Mm. with all those sort of things but the number of times that um, Herring will even throw into a set I'm not crazy I was thinking of seeing John Robbins as well. I mentioned John Robbins. I think John Robbins is great. John Robbins is not a well man, if you're using an ill-well dichotomy, which I don't like to. But John Robbins is a guy who experiences distress and doesn't necessarily handle it in a way that doesn't sustain that distress, let's say, if if that's an okay way of saying it. Uh, I think about this stuff all the time. I I think that can happen well. Yeah. But, you know, anyway. um, He's clearly someone who struggles with mood. He's clearly someone who struggles with, like... I was going to say controlling it, but like he's had gambling addiction and he's had other mm. things where he kind of loses himself to kind of compulsive sort of behavior and stuff um, and all sorts of things. And he talks about the darkness of Robbins and all this sort of stuff. And yet the number of times in which he says, and I think in a non-ironized way, because you could do it in a non-ironized, in a more ironic way to draw it out, but I'm not mad. Mm. Whereas I think it could be so powerful were he someone who clearly has a lot of these experiences and knows other people who've had these sort of experiences to own, you know, this is who I am and it's part of me and that doesn't mean that I'm bad, it doesn't mean I'm good, but I'm not going to then stigmatise this imagined group to try and be okay with that. I know it's not right for me to criticise because I'm just like, well, he hasn't got insight, isn't that what I'm saying, basically? I'm like some kind of unfair psychiatrist. (laughs) But I certainly felt a bit alienated sitting there thinking, well... In a way, yes, you are, or in a way, saying mad or not is not so meaningful, and that would be interesting to examine, the fact that you drink however many bottles of rum and can't really cope when the love of your life isn't there. One is, like many of us, all of us perhaps, but two maybe is, this might fall in a category, diagnostic category, and that would be okay to own as something that's normal and Mm. part of life. 
sort of thing that would be great to see normalised, absolutely. And these, and these are like... not offensive comedians who punch down. These are people who think about the stuff that they say. And still, especially, I think, in the mental illness and, yeah, developmental differences. I know, man, you just, you just said Richard Herring. And, like, he, he doesn't often, he, and I, don't, I think he does in a way that's supposed to be very knowing, but I've read his book and I hate his book. Because <laughs> it, it does fall into certain traps. But I don't think that's deliberate. I think it's because it's his only book or first book at the time. He probably has more now. Not to take away from the really valid point you were making. No, no. But, but clearly that I, I, felt I, like a, a, a point. I wanted to talk about our own experiences of doing comedy, if those exist. Hmm. If only to embarrass myself. So, yeah, around, around the horn, as it were, Comedy experience as a performer. Anything? Nothing? Nothing. Really? Uh, I, I used to do drama club in secondary school, and most of it would be my attempts to make people laugh. I think it, it was a lot like just seeing wild science, because when you're, when you're a preteen, when you're a teenager, like it, it's really hard to know what's actually funny, because, I mean, mm. you'll laugh at a reference, you'll laugh at, like, just Dadaism, like... Uh, not that any of those things necessarily bad, though a reference is not a joke, uh, as should always be pointed out to certain cartoon shows. I was going to say, if, if I was better at editing, I'd edit in a beautiful cutaway there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but I, I always thought that was really interesting, because I, I, I wasn't funny at all. I'd try and, like, come up with a sketch or a little bit to go and do at a drama performance that would fall completely fat. I think the... The funniest thing I ever did was have the word meringue written on a white fluffy jumper jump out and yell boo. <laughs> uh, at which funny. point I'd be pointed at and people would say meringue. Uh, a nice flow, of course. But uh, like, I, I think it's that thing of just, you know, that desperate want you have when you're younger of trying, trying to understand, or at any age really, trying to understand what not only makes you laugh, but what makes other people tick. Because mm. it's nice to understand people, even if... For whatever reason, you can't. And I've never been good on saying, like, in people's senses of comedy, it's always just kind of been, if I say enough things, will it be funny? Not often, not often. But still. Mm. But yeah, that, that's my literal only experience, is from being really young and kind of confused by the idea of that. How do you view your podcasting, then? Because I always found... I mean, I always find makes it sound like in the past tense. I always find your podcasting really funny. Like even like, which was the latest We Have Issues one where you were being incredibly negative in a passive aggressive way about stuff I didn't know about because I don't actually care enough about comics. Oh um, yeah, no, no. I, I, I went on a, a five minute spiel just essentially repeatedly telling people that whilst cancel comics do have merits and value, they are shit and... It wasn't as much... I was getting funny. annoyed with you about that. I was like, no, some of them are... God. <laughs> that was what you were trying to do. It was self-therapy for myself more than anything because it's like there's so many... I, I'm having to clear out a lot of stuff because I'm about to go and move uh, up to Lancashire from down here in East Sussex. And a lot of that has involved having to get rid of like short-run cancel comics that I adore. And I, I think the therapy became like properly examined going, why do I like them? And it's because... There's something kind of lovable about something that's a bit shit. But I really had to just ride the fact they were crap to push myself away. And so there's now uh, bags upstairs of mostly Marvel comics, which probably says too much, uh, that I'm just donating to suitable causes. People, probably. But yeah, do you see that? Because I would say that performance is comedic. It's 
structuring something, writing something, performing something to evoke a certain emotional reaction, some of which, as I say, I was thinking, oh, no, you're not right about this. And, you know, I think Nick set us set up that bit for you to expect that. But then it was something that, yeah, you were working with kind of surprise and misdirection. And I think of, I can't, there was, there was one, like, one of your most breathless Moncast contributions that was just destroying me. I was just couldn't even, like, listen to it. I was laughing that much. I, I, I think this is a thing, though, is, like, People have told me I'm funny within that context of like these carefully created podcast things, but like there's there's a real reason why like my second longest running podcast I've ever done is a, a factual look at manga. Like it, it's I I don't actually think I'm funny. I just think I'm a person who uh, worries about rambling a lot, so I throw in a, te- a terrible joke every few minutes and then trail mm. off and wait for someone else to pick <laughs> it up. Which is bad, because I should have that sort of confidence. Like, the thing I wanted to be when I was, like, 16 all the way through up till now is a comedian. Mm. It's just that I think I've somehow convinced myself I couldn't do that, which is dumb. Really dumb. I, you know, should always try and do things. Always always children listening at home to a two-hour-long podcast. Always do the things you believe in. Uh, yeah, because who who can stop us? We chose to do this. We're doing this. It doesn't matter if no one listens or listens this far. Here we are. We believed in our dreams. Yeah, on a three monthly <laughs> basis. Well, I, I, th- I think a big a big part though of um, I, I think of trying to be funny or t- trying to do a like comedic performance is you have to beat that sense of shame out of yourself and to go like, no, I oh. I have a value in this way. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I just feel like, um, cause like growing up, I mean, from, uh, it's getting a bit personal now for multiple reasons. I was quite ashamed of, um, just holding a conversation with people, just like putting up this front, I suppose. Like, I think the main thing was, you know, not being seen as autistic. That was the main thing. And so like, and that entails, you know, not understanding comedy. That's one of the things that makes you more noticeably autistic, I suppose. And so the moment I do say like it is an actually it is actually a moment that I um started understanding comedy, like it kind of happened in a second that things started making sense. That just kind of made it a bit easier to sort of I guess put on this front that I I didn't necessarily agree with but um, it kind of made it easier to understand and therefore made conversations look a bit more neurotypical I suppose in a comedic sense so that was kind of a sense of I was going to say performativity maybe that's the opposite of what you're looking for because you didn't want a facade but you do write jokes that you know you put on twitter and tumblr <laughs> like i appreciate them that's the sort of jokes that i need to write um do, what 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 does the idea of performance like do, is it something you imagine or think of or is it something that's just like no i'm i'm the connoisseur i'm the person who laps it all up but it's not something that i would perform it's it's um hmm I guess when I was younger, it was definitely more of a sense of I wanted, I didn't want people to sort of know who I really was. Mm. So I set up this, um, you know, this 
and I guess also because in a way I kind of scripted from a lot of comedy yeah. shows that I watched at the time. So that's how my conversation sort of flowed when I was like in my mid-teens. But I guess from um, guess I, I, having more experience in conversations and studying English language at sixth form in that university, it just kind of made it a bit of a more natural thing. And also seeing comedy, it's just kind of a part of how I process language now. And um, hmm, I'm just thinking now, it's just, I think it's just ac accidentally become a part of how I think. Okay, so there isn't the same intentionality to it that you'd have to bring. Mm, exactly. It's kind of like, um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say it's like a, a nerve thing because I don't really find conversations as nerve-wracking anymore, but I'm thinking about like comedians that I've met and they put that sort of like joke after joke after joke in conversation because they're nervous. Okay, yeah. And they've got a lot of like social anxiety and... I can I can sort of resonate with that but at the same time I think for me personally it's more because that's just a way of keeping a conversation going yeah mm. so I'm I'm the one who's done well yeah I was going to say because I guess I asked about the podcasting because you know from one point of view Psychomedia was a comedy podcast mm. I say from one point of view we wrote jokes we included jokes we did sketches I mean, uh, within the first 20 episodes, you have some of my favourite comedy material of all time. Not to toot your own horn. Oh, that's so nice. I'm going to assume that it's all Ben's responsibility. It's right. really interesting. Checking I, now. <laughs> I, I, like, I do sometimes wonder, I don't know if uh, Ben will hear this, part of me wonders, is Ben the real magic behind that comedy? And I wonder if Ben sits there and thinks... None of this would ever happen if it wasn't for Tim. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I did, as I say, I wrote stand-up and planned to do it at Oxford, and that never happened. Mm. Um, so I had a friend, Will, at high school who, again, I don't know if he's ever, he's, he's got notebooks and notebooks full of jokes. Whether he's ever performed them, I don't actually know. But he, me and him were at high school together and I think really sparked off each other and a lot of that stuff. Like The Daily Show was really influential to us and we would talk about comedy and the possibility of performance a lot. And then when I went to university, Ben and I had, yeah, that very similar dynamic of talking about a lot of comedy, consuming a lot of comedy. You know, he's a huge Eddie Izzard fan, uh, for example. Um, you know, we had that kind of very double act kind of dynamic without ever actually taking it on stage. Um, and so then, yeah, after I left, then, yeah, we started podcasts like media but there was this science element to it and some bits are very just scientific but then there's a whole bunch of surreal jokes and I'm I'm very happy like one bit of material that I really like is um you know I like my wound like I like my tea and going through an increasingly like absurd variations <laughs> to kind of subvert that sexist joke and you could say that is Eddie is our material and I think I do end by referencing back to in a plastic cup or covered in bees, or one of the other ones. Subversion was always a strong thing, uh, particularly with psychomedia. I mean, just the things you can do with phrasing and I mean, the, the, uh, particularly as the double act, because you're you're not only Tim, you are a funny person. Okay. You're also you're very good at enabling other people to be funny because even without meaning to, you kind of lead people in. That's how you end up with things like. Uh, still my favorite episode title ever, despite being kind of a weird one, which is just uh, all my best bikes are black. Like that rolled really nicely out of like a conversational 
weird area. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we were talking very seriously about prejudice, and yet we were still able to connect it with something mm. funny. But yeah, so I did do, I did, I've done three stand-up gigs. I've been a very small scale um, live in real life. Uh, the first one I ever did was a stand-up new stand-up competition uh, held in Worcester um, called Stand Up for a Grand Up, uh, done by what? what is. It was done by what is it used to be called Wyvern FM and it's now Free yeah. Radio. Oh, that's it, yeah. I think they still have the same morning host. So it was the yeah. and the judging panel was the head of like the corporate head of Wyvern Radio. Uh, I don't know what his first name is, but Hursty from Hursty and Helen the Morning Show, Free Radio. Uh, but and this is the important bit because it comes back into the story later. Uh, professional stand-up comedian Tony Vino. Uh, who is a really good real comic uh, who kind of on the circuit and does a fair bit of Midlands stuff, I think. Um, and I I did stuff that uh, you got laughs in the room, but I didn't make it through to the like final five. Uh, and uh, the main, mostly like the main theme of my five minutes was imagining the parallels between so you know uh, Katie Price has written novels mm. but obviously they're ghost written but mm. the thing that's really weird about them is that they're ghost written by a radio producer and not a novelist so I a person who had never you before were about written... to say it was done by ghosts <laughs> <laughs> so no um, and so I was talking about how writers need to get their starts and talking about how obviously Shakespeare did a lot of jobs for the money as well and drawing all of these unusual parodies and trying to figure out who the Katie Price figure was in Shakespeare's world and eventually concluding that Elizabeth I was a glamour model. Um, so a really weird kind of over-intellectual set. Um, and, and, you know, anyone who has heard my other kind of stuff in my comedy performance will know that's pretty much what I do. Um, I then did a I did a church talent show that went really well actually that I had some very topical material about like One Direction when they were new and stuff mm. but my, 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 I still say I think you know you know One Direction obviously the question is which direction in my opinion it's probably on the A329M towards Bracknell <laughs> see I, I was trying to work out if it was going to be part of like a, a a religious reference there like what direction why it has to go and be the way Okay, uh, no, 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 there was no, I don't think there was any religious material. And then I, I think it must be in the same time as The Wanted, because it was then, you know, what were The Wanted wanted for? Um, and I can't remember again, but it's, you know, playing to absurdity, it's very kind of straightforward sort of yeah. stuff, but that went quite well. And then I did an actual proper comedy open mic night, and that did not go well. Mm. Um, one, because they were like, oh, do you want to do ten minutes? And I was like... Yeah, ten minutes is clearly going to be a cleverer thing to do than five minutes. <laughs> That's I too listened, much time. Yeah, I hadn't listened to any inside comedy stuff to realise that no, you get a tight five, a tight five before you think about doing a ten. Mm-hmm. I did all new material, and I think there are still some good bits in there. There's a the whole bit about you know people say there's plenty more fish in the sea, but you know in my love life it's really been affected by the EU fisheries quotas. See, didn't oh. land. I was very happy with oh, that. No, that, that landed, but it hurt me. <laughs> yeah, at the time I had always been single, so, you know, it was delivered with a lot more pathos. Um, and there was something about, uh, like, give a man a rocket and he'll have some salad, 
but teach him how to build rockets. That you know, so various weird pun kind of slash absurdity stuff. But yeah, it was not a responsive audience. Now to be fair. I fell into the... I say I fell into the typical comedian trap. Clearly none of that stuff was polished and you've got to fail and fail better. And that's the thing I haven't ended up doing. I haven't gone back to stand-up because I've been focusing on other things that are less painful. Um, but... Um, I love that a doctorate qualifies as less painful. Actually, yes. Remind, remind me that I said that, Maxi, because at times this doctorate has and will be painful. <laughs> I, I will make you... Uh, uh, a cross stitch. <laughs> uh, what is it they say? You know, st- studying for a Declan Sy is easy. Comedy is hard. Um, but no, um, the audience, to be fair, the whole night only laughed at a guy who said pussy whipped about 10 times in a row. So, like, they weren't a good crowd for any of the other acts. Mm. But I still was very much like, Ah, this is problematic. Why? Why can't I just go beyond like Lost Treasures of the Black Heart, where there's an audience who is going to be more inclined to go with some of this stuff? Mm, whenever I think about like, I mean, because for the longest time, ever since I was like fourteen, I wanted to do stand up. But then when I was like eighteen, nineteen, I just lost that interest, and I still can't. I still find the idea of doing it terrifying. But I still kind of think of like ideas, and one of and after going to ACMS a lot in Edinburgh last year, I kept getting a lot of weird ideas. And one of my favorite ones was just like doing a set just as the Grim Reaper. And all I do was just like really shitty bone puns or death puns. And then after doing one that was like a particular banger, I would just high five someone in the audience and they would die. <laughs> 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 that's like one of my favourite ideas and yeah, also- I, I love that idea and I, the one thing I wish is that uh, following my feelings about that, that comedy should very rarely be done in costume is you should just tell people you're the Grim Reaper but at no point dress for the part <laughs> what? <laughs> just, just assume I'm the Grim Reaper as I am just demand they have like the um, suspense of disbelief and then when you kill someone by high-fiving them it, uh, oh it yeah just I'm the Grim Reaper that sort of thing yeah <laughs> One idea I also really liked, I, I like, practically it it cannot work because it requires too many props, but <laughs> the idea was just like, um, going on stage and saying, oh, I heard you like niche jokes, and then I, put, I have like a bag on me, and it, I would say niche like Nice, the city in France, Nice like niche like fish or niche like niche kuma just put like all these random things that sort of rhyme with niche out of it and after i do those little things i put like sunglasses on like i put them on my eyes and i put them on my head and then everywhere else on my body but it's just like so impractical it's such a funny idea when you think about it but it's just so impractical it wasn't too impractical until you had to get sunglasses all over your body, but I like that as much as anything. That's great. Because yes, people definitely sell Nish Kumar action figures. I mean, what yeah. they do is they buy action figures of, of me and then repaint them, because as everyone knows, I'm the white Nish, according to him. <laughs> <laughs> I took it as a compliment. He suggested that was not in the intention. <laughs> but yeah, there is something about wanting that kind of a space where you could do that stuff. I wanted to, I want to start a comedy collective and I've never gotten around to it because if I can't even do my own comedy like or regularly do a podcast then unlikely to start a collective. But 
I wanted to give it, I wanted to call it something, and that's the only thing I've really decided about it, apart from it would be a space for weird comedy so that we could all be okay and not freak out by having to do actual real open mics. Um, I love that sort of thing, uh, very much in the vein of, I mean, it's more sketch comedy, but what Loading Ready Run do always kind of strikes a chord as the sort of thing I want to do is get funny people I like together and just make funnies that are in a safe space. Yeah, no, but I think the safe space yeah. thing is kind of important. Like, the comedy club that I was most involved with helping out at was one called The Laughing Soul, which was, like, a comedy club that was a safe space for people who um, struggled with the hostile, sexist, uh, and often, like, charged violent language of a lot of comedy clubs. Um, I think there is room for comedy clubs that set down certain boundaries about, like, you know, you could say ACMS does that, about boundaries yeah. about content in terms of the unusualness, but saying, well, actually, no, this is, like, a safe space for women in the audience, say, or yeah. this is a safe space for jokes that aren't polished you know mm-hmm. that's and I know those two things don't have an equivalency but but yeah I wanted to call it technetium because technetium is my favorite element in the periodic table because there's all these transition metals right and then there's one in the middle that for no adequately explored reason is radioactive and man-made like all the other radioactive man-made elements have their space but there's one in the middle of all the normal elements that is radioactive and man-made and there's no reason for it to be there as far as I understand so I think if I, yeah, if I create a comedy collective, that's what I'd call it, because there's something about highlighting the weirdness, but also in an incredibly densely referential way that no one else understands. Mm. So yeah, there, there's my pitch, guys. Anyone listening who wants to join, <laughs> by all means. Well, I'm, I'm just saying to him, if you wanted to throw a comedy thing together, I, I am not, I'm not desperately in need of validation at any point, so don't, don't hit me up at all. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that would be a better name. The Desperately in Need of Validation Club. Or AKA oh. All Comedians. Might just, that yeah. could just be a good name for the episode, because my current one's getting a bit long. <laughs> you mean my current one's getting a bit long isn't a good name in and of itself? Well, that's a problem as well. Oh, we've got too many good names. Well, because one I've got at this point is uh, Max doesn't know Pappies, hasn't been to a live gig, has never really performed comedy, thinks Ben was cooler than Tim, and other disappointments. <laughs> Uh, uh. Um, well, look, 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 there's all positive things to see. Like, how easy is it for you to get a train into London? We'll go and see Pappy's live together, and that will solve two birds yeah. with one stone. We have go to see Pappy's live. We, we so have good. to finally do the, the actual Tim and Max meeting. Oh, yeah, we've never day. actually met in the flesh, which is so that really? means actually, yeah, me, me, me and Josie have met in person without necessarily realising it at the time because we'd never, well, that's how we met. But um... <laughs> yeah, uh, me, me and Tim met through uh, separately doing five minute uh, bits for a comics review podcast and oh. then have just managed to go and spend years doing the most irregular podcast possible. See, that's why like, I immediately think of Pappy's with um, Tim, because that's where we met at a Pappy's gig in Bromsgrove. Mm-hmm. I remember because you started um, talking to them about, um, they mentioned Walt Disney's head being cryogenically frozen, and you gave like a big explanation to them about what it actually, how it actually entailed. Or something oh, like Tim. That. <laughs> <laughs> oh. In fairness, I, I was a massive fangirl at the time, and I asked them for an autograph. Yeah, the, kind of the contrast Pappy. between our two physicians, we were the only two people who really knew them at yeah. the whole gig. And we In were the two Bromsburg. people staying behind to speak to them. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but it, I didn't. I don't remember. That's what I said. But because there's another occasion where we talk, where I talked to them online about whether sperm from like the Edwardian era could be used to impregnate someone because they talked about it on Bangers and Mash, yeah. um, and like I wrote them a long thing about epigenetics. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not surprising that cryogenics, epigenetics, like all of this sort of stuff that I was talking to them in a nerdy way in that sense is not really surprising. I mean, in, in fairness, my reputation with pappies is, um, I don't know if you remember in Bangers and Mash, um, Matthew Crosby specifically asked some, like the audience, if they could write a list of every question Tom Parry had ever asked on the podcast, sort of as a joke, but I did it because I was bored and I thought it'd be a good transcription exercise for my course. So I wrote, it took, It was 28 pages long. Wow. He asked over 12,000 questions in 26 episodes. None of them yeah. relevant or useful. <laughs> no. Not one. That's genuinely I, impressive as well. Yeah, I was going to say the most obsessive podcasting I did is that I created a graph of all the appearances of every single guest on the Overthinking It podcast, <laughs> which literally was just a way of me going, see, I'm a little bit special, because obviously my appearances number is a few on that, um, <laughs> but not as many as some of the... Anyway, I, I think I used it to argue that I should be d described as a regular guest and not a special guest, okay. because that was somehow important to me. But that is nowhere near the amount of effort of actual transcription. <laughs> I mean, like, I was tempted to do it in, like, proper linguistic transcription <laughs> sense. But I thought, now I'll just write down a list. That'll be easier. Yeah. And um, I actually um, met Tom Parry late that year. I did it in April 2014. And I met him in Edinburgh in August that year. And he and I was basically I was being introduced to him by a friend of a friend. I was and um, my friend um, Sophie, she did stand up at the time. And so her friend was just like lording over to her for, to Tom, like, oh, she's really good. You should go see her. She's one of the new fresh faces of the comedy scene. And then she went over to me and was like, I don't know what to say about you. So I was like, I, I wrote down that list of questions you asked on PBAM. And he was like, yeah, I recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> it was one of the most awkward moments of my life. But <laughs> it was so sweet, uh, sweet though, because one of his mates was with him and he was like, oh God, yeah, I read that list. And I called him up like late at night and asking him if he was okay. <laughs> So essentially, you're responsible for him having an intervention. <laughs> exactly. Can, can you try it again? Because I think he's drinking might be a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was actually like a moment in a recent PBAM episode where I think Matthew said something sort of like, oh, we've had people, we have, we've had someone write down all this stuff before. We can get them to do it again. Like, <laughs> you're indirectly talking about me. Great. <laughs> Yeah. This is, is my reputation. Is now the time to mention my audio scrapbook? <laughs> oh, Have I mentioned my audio scrapbook before? I don't think you mentioned it on this version of Tim Max. Okay. Um, I don't know if it existed on the old version of Tim Max. I, I don't think it existed there either. I feel like I've heard you talk about it somewhere, but we do just talk before we record stuff as well. Yeah, so like... yeah. So I have an audio scrapbook, which is every time that I've been like mentioned or talked about or had something read out on a comedy podcast, 
And then also I have a supercut of all of the times people have said my name on those things. Yeah, Which I know. Is, I mean, I was impressed enough back when you uh, had your just record of every podcast you've ever actually oh, yeah, I been on or well. made. Yeah, which is a far more reasonable list. Well, yeah, because that's things I've actually somehow achieved or created. Exactly. Whereas the other one is just, oh, I'm special. But there is something. My uh, supervisor said to me today or yesterday, he said, we all like to know that we've been held in the mind of another person. So if you say to your client, oh, I've really been thinking about you, you know, because you have, not don't make it up. But, you know, I've really been thinking about you and what you said last session. That's something that people will experience really positively. Don't feel weird about acknowledging that. But I think there's a more general truth in that. It makes us feel so special to think this person who I value, in some way, I exist in their mind. Yeah. I, I so it's a, get that. it's a bit different depending on like how they react to you. True, <laughs> true. But it seems there's something in comedy fans, especially, that seems to feel that way. I mean, like um, the comedians that I've made friends with over the last few years, they've always been like very appreciative of the fact that I enjoy their stuff, mainly because they're not as well known as like mm. Pappies mm. are quite very are very popular in the comedy world, I suppose. Um, and but like um, I made friends with the beta males, and they were very appreciative of the fact that I liked them and I kind of liked their Twitter and stuff. And I became friends with them, and they were really nice. And I think a lot of um, other comedians as well, like Chris Coltrane, because I um, I um, signed into his Patreon, so um, I'm help supporting him financially. <laughs> and I think he really appreciated that. Well, you're basically the boss now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it does make me wonder what Marx would say about Patreon. I'm very curious about that. I'll have to ask someone who knows more about Marx than I do. Well, the important thing is it'd be nothing massively... Wait, Karl Marx, right? So we're not going down a comedy hole where I've just not heard of a comedian. <laughs> no, 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 yeah, no, Karl yeah. Marx. Okay, not, um, so nothing off, realistically relevant the to Marx the Marx brother? Squad. <laughs> Groucho <laughs> Marx. Groucho, yeah, because I was going to say Harpo, but isn't Harpo the one who doesn't speak? Harpo's the one who doesn't <laughs> speak, who what I have Harpo frequently Marx? been compared to. <laughs> really? I, I'm Bizarro Harpo because I'm like him, but I never shut up. <laughs> uh, I, I'm like Groucho Marx in that uh, all of my rubbish facial hair is actually painted on. <laughs> Which, given how scraggly my half-shaven like face is, um, you know, it's pretty a lot of effort to get that all in with just like paint. I, I have an actual beard. Uh... So, I, I couldn't grow a beard if I wanted to. I, I, I tried once. I don't want the beard. Okay. I, I have a very peculiar relationship with uh, facial hair, but I'm also very lazy, so... I feel like it would be itchy. It is. Based really... on my experience in contact with beards, I imagine having one is just as itchy. I, I feel like I mostly have it because my fiancé likes it, but... Ah, uh, Okay. That and she got me a mug that said something about beards. Now I'm stuck with our identity. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's like, well, my fiance likes it, but also, like, I'd have to not use this mug, and that would be difficult. Well, because it would just it would just look like I was into beards if I didn't have one, and that goes completely counter to who I am as a person. Because I don't think beards are very good. I just have one. I'm trapped forever in this existential hell. <laughs> That's why I've been a drama queen for a long time because I've got a drama queen mug 
Well, I guess I have what well, I have a Freud mug, so that probably makes sense. <laughs> I have many, many Star Wars mugs. Well, like maybe we are more determined by our mugs than we thought. <laughs> I mean, Tim, you say you've got a Freud mug, but you shouldn't read too much into it. Like, <laughs> There's a great joke on the bottom. So the one thing is it says Freudian sips when you say one thing in your mother. But on the bottom is my favourite joke of it, which is uh, made in China. For best results, use the other side. And I'm just like, that's so clever, because no one would think looking at the bottom of a mug, oh yeah, let's make a joke about how someone might pour their tea on this side of the mug. You can have a very small sip. Um... We have been going for what I believe is going to be the equivalent of about two hours and 15 minutes at this point. So, yeah, we should probably wrap up unless anyone else has anything else to say. I'm aware, like, scratched the surface as usual because it turns out trying to cover an entire artistic medium or philosophical area kind of difficult. I, I feel like we've done what is probably like the first half of talking about uh, stand-up comedians more so than anything else. And, like, we could honestly do twice this amount yeah didn't so, say I, anything I, about sitcoms yeah uh, that's a good point yeah well, I, I, I have I have notes here I haven't even talked about musical comedians I mean we mentioned Tim Minchin but that's I don't really know his stuff uh, so like I mean there's so much more we could do and we really should at some point but I think on another level we might have to temporarily put a pin in it so we don't just do an actual 10 hour episode yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, because I probably should actually, like, go to bed and stuff. It's really dark. I didn't turn on a light, and I'm kind of regretting that, but I have to move. So I'm just kind of huddling in the light of my monitor in an otherwise pitch black flat. So that's good. Um, so, yes, I guess to conclude, uh, we should say uh, what our Twitter and or Tumblr or whatever handles we want to share are, and then say goodbye to the listener. Mm singular uh so apparently that's a radio thing i learned that from mumcast i have no idea if it's true um i, I find you have to go for the wrong sort of medium as well you have to like, call them a reader oh yeah that's very popular frank skinner show they do that an awful yeah. lot. um but that's the thing is all the good ones are probably taken my favorite name for listeners of a podcast was from advice hot dog where the name for their listeners was plump lumps which i think is just beautiful that's great I, I wish I could find a way to justify saying spelunkers just because it's doesn't roll off the tongue very well. But <laughs> I know maybe who delve deep into this podcast because you kind of have to keep going and keep going. Yeah. Not even that; just that they have to go and dig really deep to even find us. So it's fine. <laughs> true, true. Well, if you want to find this show, it's hosted at psychomedia.wordpress.com. Uh, where you can also find apparently episodes in which me and Ben were funny. Um, other episodes of this show, which is uh, something if you've enjoyed this episode, you will enjoy, I'm sure. And uh, my other comp compilations, my contributions to We Have Issues, which is called Psychologic, which is talking about uh, mental health in comic books. Um, yeah, and you can find me at TetrarchAngel on uh, Twitter, tetrarchangel.tumblr.com. Tetrarchangel is usually a safe bet for any form of finding me. I was mm -hmm. 13, it was a cool name, I apologise. And you can't work out how to spell it. I Google probably will help you. <laughs> so I was itching my hand, should I go next? <laughs> As like, Joyce incepted yeah. you with the idea that your hair is itchy. <laughs> Well, no, because my arms aren't particularly hairy. Uh, 
hairier than they've ever been in my life. But I, I'm basically I'm like a, a manatee in human form. Uh, not not a lot of hair. So a human manatee. That's definitely like, uh, the portmanteau, right? A manatee. Manatee. <laughs> <laughs> it works perfectly because no one will know. Uh, yeah, I, I can be found over at uh, Maxi underscore Barnard on Twitter. That's like if you took the name Max and the word Barnyard and then switched it around a little because I'm a human being. Uh, where I mostly just kind of retweet other people's stuff. But it's also being kind of used as a hub at the moment for my new uh, series of contributions at We Have Issues, which is at the other10percent.net where I'm currently doing a series where I'm looking at my favourite comics and artists uh, in relation to iconic characters. Like the last one I did was talking about Superman as drawn by Tim Sale and the story Kryptonite. Next week, I I don't know yet. I should actually probably get that written at some point. I'm recording tomorrow. Uh, Other than that... Uh, you can find some of my old podcasts by going to one of my old podcasts by going to friendshipeffortvictory.wordpress.com where I talk about the 45 plus I think it's like 48 year history of Weekly Shonen Jump now because uh, I may be the anti-weeb but I am also the true weeb it's <laughs> great and so me okay um, I am I am I can be found on Twitter at Josie Russell, as in the verb Russell, not the name. Um, I the last thing you'll find from there is me live tweeting Eurovision. <laughs> so I feel like you've been very much on brand both on this show and on, <laughs> and on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Also, you get uh, my best ever joke as the pin tweet, which I'm still proud of to this day. It's a good it's joke. Pr- it's a very good joke. It's very good. It's probably the the, the most complicated pun I've ever thought of. Um, and you can find me on Tumblr at um, skippingismagnificent.tumblr.com. That is an old Ma- Michael McIntyre reference. I was going to talk about that when we were talking about Michael McIntyre because I think I was I was like fifteen when I made Tumblr. Though so I was you made was on- Tumblr. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> We were all 15 in our hearts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was made by 15-year-olds, whether they were biologically 15. <laughs> oh, I, I was 15 when I made my Tumblr, that's what I meant to say. Sorry. <laughs> oh my god, the pin tweet is actually really funny, I love that. Thank you! Some of my, oh, there's a really good tweet that I made, um, I should probably uh, carry on talking about my blog. I mostly just reblog funny things talk about personal stuff whatever i do like have moments recently i have my like fangirl moments about eurovision i also reblog a lot of british comedy stuff i don't know it'll just it's it's fine it's just how and thank you for following me oh god damn it i love that that's live you can hear the notification I literally heard it and I went, oh, I've broken a motion here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gone past the fourth wall right here. <laughs> um, oh, <dear>. <laughs> actually, I will talk about a tweet that I did recently that I really like because I haven't been making like jokey tweets in a while. But it was um, a linguistic tweet. Oh, I don't know if I can fully remember it, but it's like, um, why, why is a bilabial plosive like... 
Oh, so, oh, you have to find the tweet. It's good. It's good. I promise. So there you go. You've been given motivation to, to go through all her tweets. <laughs> to find my to find my Twitter and go past all my live Eurovision tweets. So yes, thank you very much for listening, listener, and until next time, which very much again is guest de- dependent. Uh, we I'll try and find one for once, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I've already already reached out to another person who, again, I'm like, here's a podcast episode. Listen to it. Tell us if you want to be on it. Um, So we'll see how that goes. Um, They haven't gotten back to me yet, so maybe that's not a good sign. Anyway, uh, until next time, uh, goodbye. 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 (laughs)